Deadwood Soundwell. Not safe for work. Not safe for work. Not safe for work. Welcome to Not Safe for Network. I'm Biggs. And I'm Brandon. So I'm going to start out talking about Succession a little bit. I know you probably haven't watched any, right? Zero. Yeah, I figure at this point, if you're going to watch it, you're going to hear things before you watch it anyway. So I uh, feel like it's the most prestige show that HBO has at the moment. It seems like the ratings are really, really high on it. It started to kind of get positioned that way right before the pandemic. And then they had to wait a year because of COVID. And so it was a really big deal when the episodes dropped this year. And there's just been discourse on every episode. And I've been holding back quite a bit. I just want to talk generally about the season. So what I really like about this show is that the premise is essentially it's this guy played by Brian Cox, who is a Rupert Murdoch stand-in, basically. It's not exactly Rupert Murdoch, but he's pretty close. And he is having health problems, and he's starting to lose it. And so his son, Kendall, is supposed to take over everything. This is season one. And then he decides, nope, I'm going to take it. And so Kendall kind of challenges him. It winds up in this big pissing match, which keeps going on and keeps going on. Who plays Kendall? It is Jeremy Strong. Okay. And... Essentially, all of his children, except for this one guy, Connor, who is in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He's Cameron. But we get to see him in his, you know, 50s. (laughs) I mean, he was in his 50s in Ferris Bueller. (laughs) He certainly acted like it. But there's a big difference, dude. There's a lot of gray in his hair for sure. But, you know, crow's feet and stuff like that. It's a really good show. And what I like about it is they kept positioning it as if one of the kids is going to be the heir apparent. And then the father will just knock their legs out from under him. And so we finally wrap the season finale which like spoilers if you're going to check out Succession and you haven't yet. He spends time with each one of them, making them feel special, making them feel like they're the person in the inner circle. And we find out it was just kind of a test and they all fail because he's highly, highly emotionally abusive and verbally abusive to all of his children. And honestly, like everybody else in his orbit, like he's just an awful human being. And his kids aren't good either, but you start to root for him, right? Like you got Karen Culkin plays a guy who's basically like kind of like an edgelord, honestly. Like he's all about fascism and stuff, but he's very quick with insults and very, very funny. And then Sarah Snook is his daughter who has a liberal bent, but she's willing to sell it all down a river to take control of the company. Right. So like these three kids are trying to buy for it. And then you have the guy who played Cameron, right? Like he is this fuck up who wants to run for president and he's obsessed with running for president. Everything around it is running for president. And they have an episode this season where they focused on what really happened happens in the back rooms where you choose the nominees you know who are you gonna back like i think about it like the Koch brothers for example whoever the Koch brothers back always winds up being the republican nominee every single time since they've started doing it they always find that person and so they had this big pissing match and connor's in the room and he keeps yelling that it should be him and like nobody even considers him for a minute like it's so <laughs> sad dude basically it leads up to the season and they brought in stellan Skarsgård. no not stellan uh who's 
who's the is it Alexander who was in True Blood? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So they bring in him and he basically owns this big streaming platform and they're supposed to merge with them because they run a media company. And basically what happens is his company gets elevated in profile, whereas because of all this Me Too stuff, Logan's company winds up being pushed down and so they're not in a position to really bargain anymore and so finally they sit down across the table and the guy's basically like i want to buy out your company i'll give you this stake on the board of directors like i'll put your son in this like important position but i want to call the shots and he goes along with it Because he's just like, this is the deal to do. And it's kind of smart because it mirrors what Murdoch actually did, which was like he had a son that was supposed to be groomed to take over Fox. And then instead he just cut the legs out from under him and sold to Disney. Right. Like that actually happened. And so we saw that mirrored. And so the sons and the daughter who have just been taking so much shit from him finally get the sack to all stand up to him. And they all go in the meeting because they each have enough say on the board of directors where they can block any kind of transaction and so they all unite for the first time in the show it's like three seasons so far and they unite against him and then it turns out that their mom had given them the cell basically negated it through other terms because she had handed him that power after her divorce and then he made some kind of backroom dealing with her and her new husband and so he yanked it out from him at the at the end of the episode and so they all lost the thing that they want which is like to inherit the company it's kind of amazing because it's a lot of what the show was about and they just said yeah we just gave you the highest stakes that you could get in this show and they just paid it off and there's gonna be another season and I can't wait but I fucking love the ballsy move where they're just like yeah we're gonna like settle this thing that the show is about and then we'll see where we're at next season but we're not gonna leave anything on the table and I fucking admire it man like Game of Thrones did it in season one right when they killed Sean Bean's character and I know it's established in the book but still for storytelling that was pretty big just marvelous it's like fantastic last season. Really, really a fan of this show. Can't wait to see what they do for season four. But I said my piece. <laughs> uh, so we just both watched a trailer for The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, which is a, a Nick Cage movie where he is playing himself. And apparently when they're in the production side of this, when they talked to him, the director kept pushing for him to be manic and, you know, do the rage cage kind of thing. And Nicolas Cage was like, well, actually, I'm... I'm more quiet and reserved. And he's like, no, like the angry Nick Cage is is the best Nick Cage. He's like, that's the one we want to see in this movie. So Nick Cage is like, my manager said it's really good. Like, I'm not going to watch it because I think it's too close for him to watch this movie. But apparently there is a segment in it where he's offered a Quentin Tarantino role and Quentin Tarantino is going to be in the movie. I heard this from Carl. I haven't gotten to read up too much on this particular movie yet. And I almost don't want to. Like, I kind of want to just step into it and watch it because this is the kind of movie I fucking love. What did you think about that trailer? Two things like he definitely is mostly reserved. Pedro Pascal is definitely way crazier than him through through that trailer. Yeah, we should say essentially Nick Cage is having money problems, so they're bringing the real world into this, right? Like, we all yeah. know this. Like, anybody who's been paying attention, you know a lot of the reason why he's ta- he's been taking all the crazy 
movies he's taken in the last, I don't know, decade or so is because he's been having financial problems because he fucking buys dinosaur bones and like all sorts of shit and just can't keep up with his bills. So he just does all these fucking crazy movies. And so he's got this $600,000 hotel bill because he's been living in this fancy hotel for a year and fucking Doogie Howser himself, (laughs) Neil Patrick Harris, is telling him, you need to meet with this rich guy for a million dollars and like go to a party or spend a weekend. It was a little bit unclear exactly what he's supposed to do, but he's supposed to hang out with this billionaire played by Pedro Pascal. And Pedro Pascal is definitely crazier than Nick Cage in this movie, but fuck, dude, it looks so funny. Yeah, and then, like, the, the back and forth between the two of them looks looks like a lot of fun. Yeah, they have a part where Nick Cage is, like, scaling up a brick wall. Well, at first, like, they're doing some sort of drugs. Uh, Pedro Pascal gets the fear. And so they, like, get up to run, and, like, Nick, Nick Cage, like, scales this brick wall. <laughs> and he's trying to lift Pedro Pascal up over it and he's like I'll, I'll never forget you and like jumps over the other side and then like Pedro Pascal is all defeated and like walks around and the wall just ends <laughs> walked around. Oh, we could have walked around it the whole time <laughs> dude that shit looks so funny man I cannot wait for this like this could be a big deal for Nick Cage too I gotta say like a movie like this remember how for example um, John Malkovich was just had this incredible run and it starts to dry up just a little bit and then being John Malkovich comes out and he was just more of a noted character actor who was starting to be looked at as like you know he would be like the second or third lead in a movie and then he started to be looked at as the main villain like in in the line of fire for example or like Con Air he's like the main villain right right and then he does being John Malkovich and suddenly because they keep talking about him being this great actor in the movie people actually start to look at at him as a great actor and, and I really think it like comes from that movie the fact that he was able to make fun of himself but also handle that and handle this different versions of himself yeah all the different versions of there's himself. a lot <laughs> just in the <laughs> restaurant scene right Malkovich 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 <laughs> I think this might rejuvenate Nick Cage back to the A-list I'm not saying it's going to happen but it kind of could happen couldn't it it could like this is the kind of movie that could get you back up there because everybody laughs at it and like, oh yeah, Nick Cage has been struggling for a while and he's pretty good in this and he's laughing about it. That could put him right back on there. Like maybe he doesn't have to do these shitty, shitty movies anymore. Maybe he can go and do like big blockbusters again. I'm really pulling for him in a way that I didn't think I would again, you know? Oh, I'm always pulling for Nick Cage. I'm always but, pulling for but him. It, but like, it's, it's always, I'm always seeing him in like Willy's Wonderland or that kind of shit that like, I mean, it's fun to watch that Nick Cage, but sad at the same time when you think of like Raising Arizona Nick Cage or <laughs> that's a, such an interesting example you bring up <laughs> like the goofiest of Nick Cage's like Let, let's go with or, let's go with like Leaving Las Vegas Nick Cage how about that yeah or even I mean you even brought up uh, Con Air and The Rock like, right I mean those were huge roles for Nick Cage. Yeah. I hope he can spin this into some gold because if this movie is half as good as its trailer, this is going to be a great comedy. It's apparently dropping in April, so we've got a ways to it, but... My only uh, thing that I don't like about it is they drop it on April 22nd instead of April 20th. (laughs) Well, you never know. They might have, like, a limited screening or something. It's probably a Friday, though, right? Uh, I'm sure. Yeah. (laughs) So moving on, 
Um, Wilmer Valderrama, Fez from Fez? that 70s show, yeah. And also he produced and hosted Punked for MTV, right? That's why we know his name. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to think if that was... Or wait. No, because Ashton Kutcher. No, that was that. Ashton Kutcher. Didn't he do something with MTV? He did. Uh, I know he had his own show. It was like uh, I thought he was doing The Wild and Out or something. Maybe that was it. He was doing something on MTV that had some success for a while. And I remember he produced it, put himself up front, kind of did the Jaleel White thing, which for people who are a little bit older, you know he was Urkel. And uh, Jaleel White was almost obsessed with every appearance he did in anything when he wasn't Urkel. He made sure that people knew he was cool. He always had like this cool thing going on because I think he was so paranoid about the Urkel thing. And I'm noticing like Wilmer, whenever I see him in anything, anything at all that's not that 70s show, he's definitely trying to look as cool as possible because he was the biggest nerd in a show that had Topher Grace. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> well, his character was the biggest nerd. I'll, I'll say that. He's attached to something that looks kind of cool, at least for me. He is producing and starring in a Zorro series that will be on Disney+. Plus. So they haven't started production on this, but they made the announcement. I think this could be a really big show, actually. I know you're not a big Zorro fan. We kind of talked about it in some podcast a while ago, uh, talking about the, the Zorro thing a bit. And I know you didn't watch it a lot, but I think about it and like that could hit really big right now. Like it's high adventure. It's like a rich guy who looks out for his community and uses a rapier. It's kind of based off of the same source material Batman is, right? Like, yeah, like they're both based off of um, the Count of Monte Cristo, right? Like, essentially, when you boil it down. But Zorro's older. Zorro, I think, started in like was reading in 1920 was the first iteration of Zorro, and then he had a TV series in in the late 50s, and then I think in 1960 they did four one-hour shorts to kind of close off the series. They did a reimagining of it on Family Channel back when it was Family Channel. I think it's like the ABC Family now. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's it seems like it's changing some, all the time. Oh wait, no, they changed the name of it again. Because <laughs> ABC Family was like we we took Family Channel, so we're gonna slap our name at the top of it to keep the Family Channel people, but also like bring in some new people. And then they changed it again to something else. Yeah, and then they like split out the Hallmark Channel and like yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't super great. And I do remember the podcast we're talking about it now. We were doing our Batman episode on in syndication because Adam West was on an, an episode of Zorro. And I remember it was very clear he was in that because it was kind of a meta thing. Like he played Batman and, and Zorro is similar to Batman. I think this could be pretty cool. What do you think? I mean, obviously we got a couple of Antonio Banderas movies in the 90s. I think my boss Eli was just watching it was like, holy fuck, that's a fun movie. He's like, I kind of forgot about it and he saw it on a streamer and watched it again he was like it's a lot of fun yeah i remember watching that and i'm kind of a sucker for antonio banderas so. antonio banderas no it's too sexy <laughs> much too sexy <laughs> was that like an snl sketch yeah yeah <laughs> i can't remember who played him but god i don't remember like i'm thinking it was chris Catan, but i don't think that's right i could see chris Catan doing that <laughs> Kind of a bad look now when you realize it, it was almost definitely a white cast member, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oops. I think this could be a lot of fun, dude. There are some things that don't go out of style permanently, 
And I think this is the kind of thing that could be because you can put so many different spins on it. You can update it if you want. I think it works better as a period piece. Personally. I think so. Just because you can have the sword out and have legit sword fights, you know. And that's always fun, dude. In an era where a lot of the streaming shows that are coming out are starting to be fantasy because everybody's looked at what Game of Thrones did and developed their own Game of Thrones stuff. This has a different flavor than that, but it still scratches the same itch, I think, right? Which is just like guy comes in with the sword, like takes care of a bunch of people. It's like kind of high adventure. You can get the occasional gun in there if you want, but you just have him like slash their hand or something and drop the gun and then put the Z on, on their chest. That was Zoro's move, right? Like put a yeah. Z into everything. This, this is the way. Yeah. <laughs> Would you watch it? I'd probably give it a give it a try. Yeah. You're not like sold, but you give it a chance. Yeah. I think that's all they need. They just need people to be willing. And then the hard part is to make it good. <laughs> like, I think the source material is there where you could easily make it good. You just have to then do that. Sony CEO Tom Rathbun clarified Sony and Disney's Spider-Man situation. Uh, Sony owes Marvel one more give back because Disney lent them Doctor Strange for No Way Home. He also clarified that they have a good working relationship with Disney right now, and there's no specific plans that will take place. The MCU has one more movie with Spider-Man. It sounds like Sony's still planning to do a trilogy, but that is what they're planning on doing with the MCU. So it's sounding like it's pretty good considering the CEO of Sony seems to be happy with this, right? Well, I think so. I think I think they've been making bank off Spider-Man with since he's been with the MCU. Like, I think uh, everybody is happy with that. And once again, I mean, we talked about this a long time ago, but Marvel's making a ton of money off of it too. Like Disney's making money off of action figures and stuff, in addition to whatever chunk they're getting out of the movie now. So you know, they're they're also making a lot of money out of them. Like Spider-Man being successful is only good for Disney, even if they don't hold the rights to Spider-Man in the movies. So yeah. the fact that they can bring their creative team over to help things, it just oils those coffers. So I'm hoping to get more and more Spider-Man as we go along. Tom Holland had addressed the situation earlier and said he would have the right of refusal on any MCU project if he didn't want to sign off on it. So there's that little thing, too. We could get difficult actor syndrome from Tom Holland. It's like, shut up and do what you're told. <laughs> yeah, I don't see that. But, sir, I don't want to do that. Although he wants to be Fred Astaire, so he's playing Fred Astaire in a biopic. Is he? Yeah. I know he's also in Un Uncharted, and he's dead convinced this is going to be a huge movie. <laughs> yeah. Has he watched a video game-based movie? I think <laughs> what it is is uh, – <laughs> let me put it this way. I was just looking at a list of the biggest box office bombs for a thing I'm not going to do because I didn't find exactly what I was looking for. But it was talking about the movies that had lost the most money, and they didn't adjust it for inflation. So I'm still looking for this list because I'm fascinated fascinated by this idea of what is actually the biggest box office bombs, you know? But I was looking at this list of movies, and so you're talking about movies in the last, like, 25 years, basically, because you have to get these super bloated budgets to get on that list if you unadjust the gross, right? Right. And there was, like, I'm going to say easily 10 to 12 movies on there that I was just like, that's a great movie. And I know, like, a lot of people have seen it, and then you look at it, and it's like, whoa, that lost a lot of money, and I had no idea. Like, the 13 Warrior. Was that an Antonio Banderas joke? No, that was Tom Cruise, wasn't it? No, Tom Cruise is not in the 13th Warrior. That's Oh, no, okay. I was I was saying The Last Samurai. Oh, yeah, yeah. Totally different movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh 13th Warrior. Yeah. 
That was an Antonio Banderas. And like I, I, I enjoyed like, that yeah, movie. I did too, and I feel like everybody I know had seen that movie, and yet it bombed because like it can still make a lot of money and have a lot of people see it on video and see it later and still lose a lot of money. So it's possible that Tom Holland has grown up with some of those video game movies where he was the age where he's just like, this is fucking great, and just has no fucking clue that like those lost money or that you were young, so maybe you should like rewatch and readjust your expectations, you know? <laughs> yeah. But um, I mean, if they're offering a lot of money up front, then you just take that and walk away. Yeah, totally. <laughs> just walk away. Uh, Carrie Ells recently talked about how when he was 16, he was hired on Superman the movie to get Marlon Brando out of his trailer every day. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So people who don't know, Marlon Brando was a legendary pain in the ass. I talk about it a bit in the Godfather podcast and the Godfather 2 podcast for A Cosmic Void. But he was a giant pain in the ass and studios hated dealing with him. Just absolutely hated and it's because of things like this. So Ells commented to The Telegraph, Marlon had no incentive to be on time because his agent had struck the most amazing deal for him. Every day that the picture went over, he got another million dollars. So he drove poor Richard Donner up the wall because he just strolled in whenever he felt like it. Sometimes before lunch, sometimes not before lunch. Els figured out that he was unagreeable until he was fed, so Carrie would bring him desserts, which would put him in a better mood. <laughs> so, like, this is literally hitting both things that Marlon Brando is legendary for. Being a pain in the ass and the eating. Ass. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And here in a couple of weeks, we'll be talking about him one more time because Jeremiah and I are going to cover Apocalypse Now at some point. So that's another legendary Marlon Brando's a pain in the ass story. He basically like ate himself out of shape for the movie. So he's supposed to be in like soldier weight and he gained like 80 pounds since he had gotten the role just eating and eating. So they had to like rewrite it when he showed up so that he's like this god like figure where he's like kind of slothing and stuff. And they did that specifically. Specifically because he was like, what the fuck? Like, what? What What is he doing? (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Okay, so we were going to talk about Get Back, the Beatles documentary. I have a lot of thoughts here. I have bullet pointed all the things I want to talk about. But you started to watch a little bit of it. How far into it did you get? We're talking about eight hours altogether here. I am about an hour half. Okay. That's exactly where I was the first time I watched it. I sat down to watch it and I was like, I'm going to watch like 15 minutes. And if it grabs me, I'll keep watching it. And then I had to turn it off at 90 minutes. And I was like, God damn it. And I didn't think I would get that pulled into it. So Uh, what kind of pulled you in that? You know, I listened to uh, Fat Man Beyond podcast with Mark Bernard. And I think he said it best. Like, it's interesting watching the sausage made. Like, everybody's seen, like, clips from the Ed Sullivan show where all the, the girls are screaming and they're getting off the airplane and the girls are screaming. Or let's we be honest, see... just, just a part of the rooftop, right? Like, that rooftop show that they yeah. do at the end of this, we've all seen at least parts of it on commercials or, like, just things where they're, like, parodying the Beatles or whatever, right? Like like the Simpsons where they have, is it the Beats or something where they're doing the, the barbershop. The B-sharps. The B-sharps, that's right, where they're doing a barbershop quartet and they, they retire after they play a show on the roof, right? So, like, we're familiar with a lot of this stuff. Yeah, but it's all the the finished, polished project, product we've seen. And so it, we've seen, like, the 
been through the machine. You've seen all of that. But we didn't get to see like them grinding the sausage in a way. Sitting down and writing music was interesting. Yeah, I got to say the way that they show it. First off, I played in bands for about a decade. I was regularly in bands, uh, sometimes multiple bands. All the bands I was in practice in a very similar way. All of them. It's fascinating to me that like even when you get to all time status, like not just an old time band, like the old time band, whether you think the Beatles are the greatest band or not, they are far and away the most recognized band ever. Like I, I don't think that's a question, right? Yeah. And even they were going through the same beat that every other musician goes through in a band. That was fascinating to me. And yes, they have like really brilliant moments that puts them above everybody else. But they actually show this in a way that I've never seen in, in a documentary before or a biopic. I mean, let's just throw biopics off the table because they're kind of ridiculous anyway. Right. But I've never seen this in a documentary before because usually – and I've watched a lot of documentaries on making albums. I have never seen them show like bad take after bad take after bad take. And I don't mean that they were bad but just like going take after take after take. But it's also just tweaking little things and going through it again tweak something going through it just till they get something that they like. I think the one thing that they do in their process that we never did in bands, no matter who is singing, I, I had two ways basically. And this is what I saw with other people singing in my bands was like either you write a lot of lyrics and then you kind of flip through your lyrics and you find something that fits the song and then you kind of fine tune it to work with the song. Or as you're writing the song, you write the lyrics as you go along, right? But I have never before seen a band go through where they're like they'll do get back, for example. Yeah. And the way that Paul McCartney will sing is the grass. Like he'll know one or two words sometimes. He'll just sing the melody that he's gonna sing. And they'll even like all harm harmonized with a like they'll find the key that they're going to sing in and stuff like that and they start there like they start with how are we going to sing this and then they write the lyrics around that like that's fascinating to me i've never seen that and very clearly that's their process they always start with the music it seems like and then they write the lyrics as they're going or at least with this album they did it i've never seen somebody do that where they're just like like i've never seen that and the fact that they let people watch that. That was weird. You never saw, like, the Beatles rehearsing like this before. You've uh, never seen any band rehearsing like this unless you've physically gone to watch a band, band rehearsing. Yeah. Every documentary, they show you takes that are working, right? Like, yeah. they show you the finished product. Like, oh, we hit it. Maybe they show you one little misstep, but that's it. We we never see this, ever. Yeah. And But it's, it's really strange because, like, you got the four guys sitting around – Pretty close. I mean, the the area they're sitting at is like the size of our studio here. Like, oh, not the first one. The first one is this cavernous TV. No, the, it's the whole studio. But, but the they're area, all sitting like right, in this right. little they're tiny about, area. They're about like five to six feet from each other. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and they're, but then like, so there's the four of them. And then like Yoko Ono sitting directly between um, John Lennon and uh, Paul McCartney. Dude. I mean, she I was, never fall- she wasn't even like a step back or anything. She was literally like John, Yoko, 
dude, I, she needed oh. to get back. Yeah. That song should have been about Yoko, <laughs> dude. Um, I have never been in the camp of like rip on Yoko. The band broke up because of Yoko. And I still don't think that because I saw the whole documentary and we'll get into some of the, the fine points over the eight hours that I think they've definitively shown why the band broke up. But I think that like the Yoko thing was a part of it. And it was a part of it because John Lennon was fucking weird about it. Because you don't see him say it in the documentary, but you hear Paul McCartney kind of mocking him and, like, doing it in a John Lennon voice about, like, you talk to me, you talk to Yoko. Like, Lennon was obsessed with the idea that they were one person. And so for, I'm going to say, certainly when they're in the TV studio, that entire fucking time, Yoko Ono is, like, two feet from him. At all times. And just not doing anything or occasionally singing, which I'll, I'll get or back like, to. But Every once in a while, she'll be like flipping a year, uh, lyric sheet and that's about it. Yeah, it's fucking creepy. And that's one of those things like I've always blamed John for that, like the stuff with Yoko, because I've been in many, many bands and it doesn't even have to be a conversation because it's just understood with everybody. You don't bring people to practice. Yeah. You don't like period. You do not bring people to practice. And if they are brought to practice, they're usually in another room or something. And even that I feel like is a little bit of a violation because yeah, I mean, you're even... incredibly vulnerable while you're playing. Well, that and like, so John wasn't the only, George definitely was in on, like he had like the f the first week, the first two days was like a Thursday, Friday mm -hmm. and they have one Harry Krishna sitting on the side and then they show up on Monday and there's two Harry Krishnas on the side. <laughs> They're multiplying. <laughs> and you're like, and dude, those guys were stoned but out of their fucking minds. Here's the big difference because yes, Linda McCartney also shows up for a while. Uh, she shows up with her kids and stuff for a while. There are things that happen in this where like people are floating in and out, but here's the major, major difference. None of them are in that inner circle where they're playing. Right. That inner circle where they're sitting there looking at each other and taking notes with each other and communicating with each other and watching each other for cues. Yoko is the only one who's like inside that circle. And to me, that's just like, that is a fucking violation. Yeah. Like that should not happen. And that is John's fault. 100%. You should not have set up that situation. Like that is just counterproductive to creativity. And I'm not saying like, oh, don't bring your one. I mean like anybody. Harry <laughs> Krishna should not be in that fucking center. The guys that are setting up the studio around them, which is incredibly distracting. I can't believe they were dealing with that. <laughs> Even they don't walk in the inner circle because yeah. they fucking intuitively understand you don't do that. Yeah. Fucked up, dude. I cannot believe that. Like, I, I kind of understand why people blame Yoko now. Although, once again, always have blamed John for that. Always will blame John for that. And I felt like the stuff I know about how abusive John Lennon was for a while, that just kind of like plays right into it because I think there was, and this is just me being a couch psychiatrist, we can't talk to John Lennon, we can't confirm or, you know, what, whatever. We'll never really know exactly what was going on there. But like, I feel like it was a measure of control for him. Like, she is next to me. She's where I can see her at all times. She's sitting there like doing what I want her to do, which is just being quiet and sitting next to me. And and then like confirming stuff and singing when I want her to sing when they're fucking around or whatever. But like, it felt like a bit of control for me. I don't know. I'd like, yeah, how did I it feel for that. you? Okay. So I'm not like, no, you're definitely not field. alone on that. So we should say that it sets up by giving a quick thing of everything the Beatles have been up to to this point like it spends about 10 minutes showing all of these things that the Beatles have done up to this point how did we get here right yeah. so they're showing the yellow submarine and help and yeah, you know the Ed showing, Sullivan performance 
Simmons. And- but more importantly, they end it with talking about how their manager, Brian Epstein, dies. Right. And this guy has been known as the fifth Beatle. I am going to reserve that for somebody else, which I'll talk about in a bit. But uh, Brian Epstein, when he died, they did seem to lose direction. And I think he found a way to filter things through the rest of the band and was able to help them focus and deal with each other better. And I think when he was gone, there was this giant void. And so I think this is how we start out where we start out, which is they're playing in a TV studio because they have decided that they're going to make an album with 14 tracks. They're going to play those 14 tracks for a TV special, and they're going to do it in 14 days. That's fucking nuts, That is an incredible schedule. And once again, they are setting up the studio around them as they're doing it. And they're sitting there playing. From zero. And they're like, this sounds awful. Like, they're playing and it... It sounds cavernous. Like, there's no way that's conducive to to recording. It's this big cavernous space. Like, describe what we're recording in right now. Okay, so we're right now in like an 8 by 10, 12 foot long room. And there are moving blankets pinned to the wall all the way around us. Yeah. To deaden the sound. So, and we can't, for example, uh, I want you to listen for the echo. When I talk up like this, you might be hearing a slight echo. And that's because I'm talking at the roof. Yeah, so, so you're getting stuff from your voice, but then you're also getting the echo delay off the roof. Right. So they're in a TV studio that is just reflective surfaces, all of it. It's and hard, it's, hard surface. It looks everywhere. like it's like 30 feet tall and it's probably, I don't, it looks like it's like half an acre. Yeah. I mean, it's like a quarter of a Walmart, just like you wall off a quarter of a Walmart. Just picture that. And that's, that's what they're recording. Like I'd imagine what they probably use it for is like you erect your moving stages on one end and then you have folding chairs or whatever for the audiences that watch the shows. I'd imagine that's what that's set up for. Right. Yeah. Which is fine for that, but this is music. This is things you're putting in your ears. And we're in a time right now when they're recording where people are starting to use headphones, right? So like Yeah, and then like stuff is actually being recorded in stereo. Mm-hmm. Describe the ground to me right now where we're recording. So it's mostly carpeted. There's a little corner of hardwood in the corner. Yeah, uh, I can't do anything with that. <laughs> yeah, but then the rest of it's covered with – and it's just – uh Close carpeting and then like a big shag rug on top on of, top right. of it. Because I, I discovered – I did like carpet squares over the, the hardwood floor and then realized, fuck, it's still bouncing sound whenever we start to like look down or whatever. So then I had to put a shag carpet over every inch that we sit. So we're always sitting somewhere on the carpet. And it does it. It doesn't sound – there's nothing on the ground that's like – it's the same as the walls and the ceiling. Like it's all fucking – it's shiny like smooth. Surface and especially one of. thing about that is like when you have a big space like that, see, it's one thing if it's a small space like this because the time it takes for sound to travel to the wall and back is pretty short. But the time it takes to go all the way to the roof of a Walmart and back is a lot more. And that is what you pick up on. Yeah, you get a more distant echo because the sound's reverberating off of the wall closer. So you don't notice the echo as much because it comes back quicker. So it's closer to the source, right? right. But if you're really far away, when it bounces back, you get more of an echo. It's the same as like if you yell in a cannon. Yell in a cannon. Yell in a cannon. 
you get that really, really big bounce back because it's so fucking huge. It's nuts that they were doing that. So that's first off. Dude, I'm sorry. We're, we're deep diving into this. So if you're not into the Beatles, you might as well sign off. This is going to be the rest of the podcast. <laughs> but I promise you there's very fascinating things in this. They're also doing a documentary while they're filming all of this. So, like, this is why we're able to watch it. It's yeah. not for the TV special. They're also going to put out a movie that's a documentary, right? So, like, they're trying to do all of this. And I think it's because they get bored. Like, I think they have well, to invent challenges for themselves. So, since Epstein had died, they had actually launched uh, Apple Studios. And they're trying to get Apple Studios to do everything. Music, TV. And so, they're trying to launch this special to kickstart all of that. Right. Like for people not in the know, they really got fucked on the record contracts when you consider like they were making some of the biggest albums of all time and they weren't getting paid like they were making the biggest albums of all time. So they were like, fuck it, we're going to do it all ourselves. Right. So they sank all of their money into Apple and Apple's still going, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> like, I think they just make a well, great living right? off of doing Beatles stuff and like solo Beatles stuff and people who were adjacent to the Beatles. No, and they're they, doing they, great. They still had. I mean, they're putting out new they put out this documentary. Well, for that, example. But I mean like as far as new musical talent, they're still putting out new new music. Mhm. So it's not just we're living off the Beatles. I mean, that is a big part of it, but, but it's also, not the only thing. They could thing. just live off the Beatles. Let's be honest. <laughs> so there's this part where George Harrison starts to talk about Eric Clapton and he's trying to break down why Clapton is so good. And he's just talking about how he will sit there and sing and do this lead part and he'll do this amazing solo while he's still singing and keeping in the rhythm of which he does not have a rhythm guitar because he's playing in cream at that point, right? So it's like bass player, Eric Clapton singing and playing guitars and a drummer. That's it. They're a trio. And yeah, so I, I, I'm trying to think if Cream <coughs> even had an organ sometimes. Maybe. If they did, it's not it's a, a studio regular member. Yeah, it's not it's not a regular of the band. But the point is he is sitting there and I've noticed this. I have noticed this. It's why I used to listen to a lot of Clapton when I was younger. He would play a lead and he'll sing over the lead as if it's a rhythm guitar over it while he's doing the lead. And then he will complete the lead and bring it back to where it needs to go without any mistakes. And it's just flawless. And so George Harrison just looks flummoxed by this. Now, it adds an extra level when you realize in a year or two, Eric Clapton's going to fucking take his wife, his wife who goes and visits him a couple of times in that studio. He's going to fuck her and then, like, steal her away from George. He's married to her at this point, And then he's going to marry her and then fucking write Layla about it. And then very publicly, everybody knows that that song Layla is about her. And then they break up. Damn. Yeah, dude. Like, you add that on top of it, you know, it's fucking like, heartbreaking, You know, it's man. fucking crazy. I grew up, li like, hearing Eric Clapton. And, like, I remember the early days of Cream and then – or, like, I don't remember. I remember hearing the early days of Cream. Right. We were not alive when Cream no. was around. Yeah. We weren't fair. even alive when Derek and the Dominoes were making their album. No. they only made one. <laughs> Eric Clapton was a solo act by the time I was born. Mm -hmm. But then, like, hearing so – much awful shit about Eric Clapton. In the last year, I have heard so much stuff come up about Eric Clapton. 
just the vaccination stuff is no, is not. Bad I'm not, not talking. I'm talking. You're talking about, about, the about in the seventies, the sixties, right? No, I yeah. get it. I'm saying like even and then like he's now, still making new awful shit. Like I and, think, and I felt bad for like growing up. Like what did you know about? Eric Clapton. He could play guitar and okay, are you talking his about son hi- died. Are you talking like, about high school? Yeah. Um, I knew some of his songs and I knew his kid died because yeah, he wrote, that, that's he what wrote the Tears in Heaven song, which like hit fucking huge in like what, 93, 94, something around yeah, there? Yeah, there somewhere so he there. did that Unplugged album that he did on MTV Unplugged. Just a big deal back in those days. They would like get established acts and then they would have them. They were usually electric and then they'd have them go acoustic. And uh, Clapton's was far and away the biggest one. Yeah. Like Nirvana Unplugged, we want to pretend like it was as big as Clapton Unplugged, but it was not. That Clapton Unplugged thing just fucking burned the world down when it came out. Yeah, and if it – I mean – and I think that was because he wrote that Tears for Heaven song. Yeah. And it was on there. And it's a good song too. Like You just remove what it's about. It's still a great song. Like, yeah. Anyway, but but I was like – I was hearing about all this like white supremacy shit from the 70s and then like now here. That I haven't heard. Oh, like if you Google – Let's save that for a future thing. (laughs) Yeah, if you Google that, you'll you'll find some shit. Okay, this is a tease for later. We're going to do a white supremacy block talking about musicians who have had dalliances with that. I can already think of three examples, so that'll be interesting. But that's that's somewhere off in the future. We should go back to the Beatles here. So uh, one more note I had on Yoko because I was watching this, which meant at various times my daughter and wife wound up watching it. And it was one of those things where you could tell they didn't want to watch it and then they get sucked in like over and over again. Something happens, which I'll get into in a minute. But uh, Yoko Ono just starts jamming with – it's just John Lennon and Paul McCartney in the studio, okay? Like Ringo hasn't gotten there yet and so paul mccartney's playing drums and john lennon's playing guitar and she's singing and she's doing her yay 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 which is how she always sings like they show her in like nine or ten different times where they're fucking around and she's always singing like that like i'm not exaggerating when i say that like that's literally how she sings and my daughter was like what is she doing and i was like she's singing and she goes why is he with her and i'm like (laughs) You're asking a question many, many people have asked about Millions have asked this question. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like she was probably very, very supportive and loving of John. Everything I've ever read, she seemed like she was very supportive I, and loving I would definitely him. agree with that. But so I, I don't want to say like she's a bad human being, but she was definitely – An awful musician. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she definitely marched to her own beat, right? Like, Oh, definitely. Like she is probably one of the few – She was too weird for the psychedelic era. Yeah. I mean, she is one of the few artists, like, think of, like, really abstract musicians. Like, there's two names that come to mind. Yoko Ono and Bjork. Yeah, but Bjork is super talented, and a lot of Bjork people like Bjork. Bjork is way more talented than Yoko Yeah, is. I feel like people, I hate to say it because it sounds like the patriarchy stuff, but honestly, people only know Yoko Ono because she married John Lennon. Like, I hate to say it, but it's true. It's true. She's not good at what she does. It's the same as, like, Linda McCartney was not a great musician. She wound up being pretty decent, I will say. Like, listening to Wings, but those early albums, she's not super good because she's learning to play. And then, like, when you get... Into the period when Wings isn't so good anymore, she's actually pretty good, you know, because it, it was unfair in a way. Like she was playing in her husband's band, and her husband was one of the most famous musicians in history. So, like, 
that's a pretty big fucking curve to be learning in front of so many people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so then, like, how far did you get into this? Like, did you see when, like, George Harrison is bringing up songs? So I got through basically when they're, like, coming up with Get Back. Okay, so when they're just coming up with it. Yeah, and the thing that I saw... By the way, they do not nail Get Back until way, way later. You hear it a lot, and they're trying to figure it out for a long, long time. That one and Let It Be take a while. I can see, like, a lot of these songs, if they're not written by Ringo... I, by the way, I, I want to say this about Ringo. Ringo was always a shorthand joke for us all the time, yeah. right? Like, my dad had the all-star band and always liked his his version of, like, uh, she's only 16 and, like, stuff like that. Like, uh, working in a coal mine. But he, he was with all these, like, really big musicians and they would do covers of stuff or they would do pull out their own stuff they were famous for and kind of play along. And I enjoyed that. But I was always like, yeah, Ringo's a weak link. Like, blah, blah, blah. I am so fucking respectful of Ringo after watching this documentary. You know, like, I'm, our guitarist Colin Corbett in my first band that was in, his dad, Danny, is this really good drummer. Plays with Grandma Fat locally. I think he still plays. I think so. Yeah. And uh, he, he met his wife, and the thing they had in common immediately was Ringo was both their favorite Beatles. And I used, we used to all snicker at that. Colin snickered at that, too. <laughs> and I, now I get it because that guy showed up always on beat. He gets told something. He, like, listens, absorbs it, and he fucking does it he's fucking on when he goes and plays piano which he does a few times he's fucking amazing amazing at keyboard like he could make a a living off of fucking being a session musician playing keyboard but he's even better at drums like i have nothing but respect for ringo after you know, watching this. actually the watching the first hour hour and a half or whatever it was the one that like surprised me the most was george harrison how so like he was a yes man. Like oh. it went along with everything. Like, <laughs> yeah, you did not get very far. You did not get very far. That's the very next bullet point I have here. So George Harrison, and this is why I asked you how far you got in. He brings up a song or two. All things must pass. Okay, so I, I, fir- I, I saw where he brought up. That's all the things. first thing he brings up, and you look at Paul McCartney, and he's fucking wincing at he every fucking pissed. note. And yeah, yeah, he's like upset while they're playing it. And then uh, I don't remember what the other one was, but it was another big hit off of the album All Things Must Pass. And Paul's just like judging him and like telling him he's wrong on this and like you need to do it this way. Like Paul's being a dick. Paul was a dick. Like over and over again to George. And like George, you just sit there and watch while they're playing and you'll see like you'll see John starts to vibe on stuff and Paul starts to vibe on stuff and Ringo's like going. You look over at George and he just looks fucking mad. Like he constantly looks mad. Then he winds up leaving the band. Like they're like. I'm going to say four or five days into the session, he calmly walks over to the acting manager and he's like, yeah, I'm going to quit. Like, you guys can just find another guitarist or whatever, but I'm just going to go. I figure this is a good time. So um, you guys, you guys can figure it out. It'll be okay. And he doesn't like scream or throw down his guitar or anything like that, but he's just very calm about it and leaves. And then they're like, fuck. And so that's when you see like Yoko Ono singing and stuff for the first time (laughs) is because like. And that's kind of a fun segment because, like, they're just like, well, we're fucked. Like, and Ringo's going to try and talk to George, but, like, like the next day, but they're just, like, they're just playing around and they're just having fun, like, playing and they're screwing around because they realize, like, they're fucked without George. And that's one of the takeaways I feel like people are not getting from this movie is, like, a lot of people are like, yeah, they didn't really need George or George isn't a genius or any of this. So why'd they fucking, like, hit a fucking wall when George leaves? They fucking needed George, dude. He was so fucking important to that band. And, like, Paul treated him like shit, honestly. Oh, yeah. And so 
they have the the most amazing thing, and I can't believe it's in the documentary. So they have certain parts where they have audio, but they don't have video because in this particular case, they hit a microphone in this flower pot in this other room because they weren't allowed to have cameras in there. And the guy who's directing the documentary, you see him three or four times, and he's reiterating to Paul all the time because when you're watching it, eventually they all get used to the cameras and kind of ignore it. But at first, Paul's like totally playing to the cameras, and all the rest of them look kind of annoyed that the cameras are there you know and then it flashes they look kind of happy and then eventually they all forget but like the guy keeps talking to paul and he's like we need realism we need to be everywhere we need to catch all this stuff if you want a good documentary and paul's like i know i know i know but then like they step off to have a meeting and it's just john and paul and so they hide a microphone in this flower pot and you hear them having a conversation and so the assumption was always that like paul mccartney and john lennon had this equal partnership And that, like, Paul kind of pissed off John, and that's why the band broke up. But you find out in this meeting, John was the leader of the Beatles, and, like, Paul is, like, kneeling down to him, basically. But, you know, John's kind of saying, like, he's literally telling John, like, you were always the leader of the Beatles. Like, we always listened to what you said, and rick a dick a or whatever, you know. (laughs) And, like, John Lennon's like, yes, but you need to really back off. You need to let George do his thing and have some creation, man. You know, like, he's trying to tell him, like, you need to, like, chill the fuck out. Like, over and over again, he's telling him that. And Paul doesn't want to hear it. And John just keeps reiterating it to him. You know, and watching what I saw, like... Paul definitely needed to chill the fuck out. Yeah. And that's one of the things I'm kind of amazed. A lot of people are taking this away. And maybe it's just because they haven't been in a band or maybe I'm seeing it differently than people. But the way that Paul's looking at people and the way that he's treating them at certain points, it's like it's one thing to like be, hey, can you try this? But it's like the way he does it. It's the way he does it. Any band I've been in when somebody starts talking to somebody like that. Either the band's breaking up or that the other person's leaving the band. Like, every yeah. time. Every it, time yeah, I've heard and that. and it was just like, I don't want to do this boring shit. Like, he was putting up that sort of way. Like, mm-hmm. like this is dull. I don't want to do this. Yeah, he's saying it without saying it. And by the way, the two songs he's fucking shitting on, huge, huge fucking singles after the Beatles break up. And they're fucking great songs. They still play all the time, dude. Yeah. Like, huge songs. It's like, Paul's just wrong about this. <laughs> like, there are like three... <laughs> I'm going to say there's three legendary songs that come out of that album. Let it be. Get back. I'm spacing on the third one. Those songs are fucking legendary. They could have had five. They could have had <laughs> five if he just fucking let George do his thing. You know? Yeah. It's craziness to me. But, like, John kind of reins him in. And then they go to have a meeting with George. And once again, no cameras there, no microphones because it's in George Harrison's residence. And they don't settle it. So now they're really freaking out, trying to figure out what they had. And, like, at a certain point, Paul's like, maybe we should call Eric Clapton. It's said with malice, dude. Like, it's the most passive-aggressive, malicious thing when he says it, man. I'm just like, fuck, dude. (laughs) Fuck you. You're such an asshole. Like, when he says that. And so they go and meet with George again. And once again, Ringo's been trying to lay out the track work to get this all to work. Because, like, you get the feeling when you're watching it, Ringo's going to be the most okay out of all these guys. Because at his core, he's just going to find people and, like, work with them. You know what I mean? Like, that's a dude who's always going to work he's already in the Beatles so his profile is like way more elevated than it normally would be for a drummer like he's gonna be fine but he's the one laying the track work with George and I think he understands on a level that like George is similar to me in that like these other two are looked at as geniuses right and like they're not 
which I, I think George is in some circles, but like he's not regarded like a Lennon McCartney thing is. You yeah. know what I mean? And so they go back to meet him a second time. And basically what we hear from that meeting is that they figure it out. And one of the stipulations that George has is like, fuck this TV studio. We need to go into a real studio and record this. And they've already pushed back this like TV thing that they're supposed to do. They eventually wind up abandoning it because like it's just not realistic, you know. And they're trying to learn all of these songs because they have to do all these songs for this live performance for this movie they're working on now. And the fucked up thing is like they've gone a couple of albums now without even playing together in the studio because they're just single tracking everything. So like maybe you have some crossover with like Lennon and McCartney, but that might be just about it, you know? Like, they're just not playing together anymore. So they want this album to be live. Everything they record, they want to record all at once. And they do that. They don't dub over anything on this album. Then, like, you're watching John, and the entire time they're in the TV studio, I think he's on heroin. I think he's on heroin, dude. He just looks like he's fucking just... I don't know. He's not totally there. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. you watch him at the beginning. Yeah, he seemed pretty sober at the beginning. Like he was he was probably on weed maybe, but he, I mean they're all high. Yeah. But I mean he they they all We see, literally see Paul McCartney smoking a joint, but they like have somebody block the camera while he's doing well, it. Oh, like he looked like he was like smoking out of his sleeve. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I saw that. That was pretty funny. Um, but it, but they all seemed pretty like calm, but not, they weren't, nobody who seemed manic or anything. It, it all seemed pretty level. Like everybody had the amount of weed you have on a Tuesday. If you were a Beatles, it's not like anybody was like, had, was so stoned they couldn't get off the floor. Yeah. So they move to this new studio. It seems like John Lennon is not fucked up when they go to the studio. We don't see Yoko everywhere after this. We occasionally see her, but like she's not right in this inner circle the whole time once they move to the studio. I'm guessing maybe that had something to do with a George mandate. I'm (laughs) guessing. We don't know, but I'm guessing because like Yoko then when she shows up, she shows up at the appropriate times and not when they're doing music, you know? Right. They're still trying to figure out Get Back. They haven't figured it out. They're getting frustrated with it, but the mood is lighter. Then they bring in Billy Preston, dude. Billy Preston plays keys for him. He comes in. He doesn't even know he's going to play keys for him. He's just going to record something for Apple. So I think he'd just done Touch of Honey. And uh, they were like, hey, you want to play some keys for us? Like kind of thing. And so he goes to play Get Back. And it's like, that's the fucking missing element. And they're all fucking smiling when Billy Preston starts playing. And then you just hear the song. It becomes the song it's going to become. You know what I mean? Like, the, they, it takes this giant jump. And you realize, like, you need those keys that are in that song. It doesn't work without the keys. And I don't know that I ever would have put that together until watching that. But then... Like, when you hear the keys added to it after you're, hearing it so many times, you're, about, you're like, it. yes, yes, it fucking needs that, man. I'm sure that's one of those things, like, we've all heard Get Back in its final form, like, so many times that I'm sure, like, to us listening to it is something where we've heard it so many times in the final product and then, like, hearing over and over again. And it's like, dude, something is missing. What yeah. Is, yeah. Yeah, something's something's missing. That's exactly right. And you hear it when it's there. So it takes them a little bit longer still. I think they finally get the final take right before they do the performance on the rooftop. But at this point, they're still trying to do something public. Paul wants to do something where they could potentially get arrested. That's like his big thing. And so at first he wants to do it in Parliament where like they might be able to get a song or two off and then he fucking they get hauled off by the police. But he wants that like that's which also like 
like blew my mind because I thought that was a John Lennon thing. You know what I mean? Like the the pushing the protest. Yeah. Yes, yeah. The the pushing fucking uh, the establishment that always felt like a John Lennon thing. So I was just like, wow, that was McCartney all the way because John Lennon could give a fuck less where they play. Like this is Paul's thing. Then like they're trying the long and winding road periodically. It's just not working. Something's not working. Something's not working. Finally, like George Martin, who's their producer, and this is like those simple little things that the producers do. He's like, it's not working because you have the PA on. Like the way you have the PA on, it's not working. They're like, well, we have to hear ourselves. He's like, yeah, but the way that we had it before, it was like a range for these individual instruments. And so you're just hearing the wrong things. And so it's screwing up your performance. So they fix it and then boom song nails it so that's like george martin figures out the the missing key so that they can have it like nowadays you just have everybody wear headphones you know what right. i mean and like the guitars and bass would probably be silent you'd probably be single tracking everything anyway but like in this particular case like that solved the problem because they're dealing with the shit of the day right so they finally figure out whoever's trying to work out the show he's like hey why don't we do it on the rooftop And then Paul McCartney likes that idea because it's in a business district. And so, yeah, it's going to be pushing the establishment. It's going to be disruptive, right? So they go and play on the rooftop. Now, that rooftop performance, as we've talked about before, we've all seen clips of it at least, right? Like even even you and me, how many times did you see the the one commercial that they had where they had all 27 number one hits of the Beatles and they just fucking played that for a year where they would do that? Yeah, I have that up. I oh, I do too. Everybody our age has that album <laughs> who likes the Beatles even a little. But they used to show a lot of clips from the, the rooftop performance, especially when they're playing Get Back, right? They go to play on the roof and they're doing all these reactions with the crowd. Now, the first thing I didn't know is you can't see the Beatles from the street. It's impossible. You can't see them at all. <laughs> I didn't know that because every time I've seen yeah, any totally kind of – makes totally checks out. Yeah, because every time I've ever seen some kind of parody of it or whatever, they'll like do an, an upward shot with like a band that's supposed to kind of be like the Beatles like on the edge of the roof, right? And I'm thinking like that's fucking crazy. Why would you play on the edge of the roof? That seems unsafe. No, dude. They're in the middle of the roof and they're fucking playing and nobody can see them and so like they have all these cameras down on the street and they're interviewing people and for a long time everybody's like this is great and they're like do you know who it is and they're like yeah it's the Beatles like and then you start to get like the older like oh well they they're disrupting my business and things like that and you start to get like these upset people so then the cops show up and they got their big old London cop hats you know what I mean (laughs) and that's fucking entertaining to watch and the fucking the, the first cop like comes in and they have hidden microphones and they've got cameras and stuff inside the lobby of Apple Studios because they're playing on the, the roof of Apple Studios. And so the cop's coming in here and he's just like trying to tell him like we've got 30 calls for noise complaints like you need to shut it down. But they're just shut fucking, it down like they're fucking ignoring it. They have seven songs to do. OK, so they play Get Back. Like, they're warming up, so then they play Get Back again. Like, they show the entire thing. So, like, they show them play it again. And then they, like, run through the other songs. And, like, the cops multiply in there. So, at a certain point, there's four cops in there. And they're just fucking standing around, dude. They're fucking cops. They could have just gone up to the roof, but they can tell there's cameras everywhere. And it's the Beatles. And you realize, like, oh, they're... Oh, if you get caught beating a beetle on the rooftop of a studio. It's not just that. They're completely cucked. They know they can't stop their performance. 
performance, dude. Because like they're on fucking camera, and who wants to be the fucking asshole who stopped the Beatles from playing in the movie, right? Because that's all they know is like the Beatles are doing a movie, so they're telling them you can't do this, you gotta shut down. Eventually, they get up to the roof, and so they're sitting there watching the Beatles finish their final song. Paul McCartney turns around, sees the four cops, and then they launch into Get Back again, dude. <laughs> And then he even ablibs a line where he's just like something about playing on the roof, although it's illegal. Like he like sneaks that into the lyrics and like the cops are just like fucking fuming. And they're not (laughs) they're not shutting it down. Still, dude, still they're not shutting it down. They're like 10 feet away from the people playing 10 feet away from the amplifiers that they could just walk over and turn it off. I guarantee it wouldn't be illegal. For them to like turn off the amplifier or something? Nope. Because there's fucking cameras and there's a movie and it's the Beatles. So they have them completely <laughs> cucked. And like John and Paul are just <laughs> fucking loving it, dude. And like Paul keeps turning around and looking straight at the cops and singing lyrics at the cops. And like they're not doing anything dude it was the most baller shit i have ever seen man it was amazing amazing. by the way none of them go to jail like i don't think they even got a fine and like even the sergeant of the police comes up and then he hears that four of them are on the roof already and they're like yeah we can't have anybody else on the roof it's not safe so he just fucking goes to an office that's like near the roof he doesn't even (laughs) go on the roof dude cucked they completely cucked the police officers fucking loved it so much man so just a quick quick aside here. Yeah. What's the only other rooftop performance that you can think of? I nothing. You two did one. Did they? Downtown LA. Okay. Uh I think it was like it might have been like Amoeba Records or like one of those that I think it was sense. a record shop. Yeah. And they did it in downtown LA. And I remember seeing that one. But then they're like, but then I was always remember like, because I remember seeing that when I was a young kid, like six, eight years old, like seeing it. But then they always said like, yeah, well, the Beatles did this 30 years ago. Yeah. Exactly. And it's definitely a nod to the Beatles, dude. And that was just the thing they did out of necessity because they couldn't get the other things that they were trying to get. So it's like, oh, dude, it was so great watching it. But now there's good vibes and stuff like heading off of this. They have one more day after the concert to finish up the album. They finally figure out Let It Be, right? Like they finally figure it out and they show take after take after take. They must have done like 20 takes after they fucking do the, the show on the roof. Boom, they nail it. And like they don't show the whole thing and i think part of it is because i know that like that is a long time disagreement that paul mccartney had with george martin because he wanted it to be just them playing the instruments and george martin put in a string arrangement later so i think he like combined the strings over the other thing but because they always let you know on the print at the bottom they always say like the song and who wrote it and then when they get the take that's gonna happen they tell you like this is the take that was used on the album you know and they use like two songs i want to say from the rooftop so which is crazy to me because all the wind and shit that was up there like you can see their hair whipping around so how they were able to still use those takes i don't know that's fucking incredible to me but just everything about this was amazing and a little bit before they get on the roof george starts talking about how like oh yeah i got all these songs and they're pretty good but uh i was thinking i'm just gonna do a solo thing like it's fine like i don't need to like throw these to the beatles like i can do my own thing and then that'll help preserve the beatles and i'm like there it is dude because like john lennon 
somewhat checked out and he starts to check back in for the sake of the album, I think. But like he's kind of checked out and he's the one that officially leaves the Beatles first, right? Like he writes a thing, puts it to the newspaper. Paul McCartney is trying to keep the band going, but he's also getting very, very frustrated. And I think he's getting very set in his ways. And so I think that's that part of it. And I think George is just like, you guys aren't even letting me, like he used to get one song on an album, you know, and he wasn't even getting that at that point. And so I think it's just like those three were all pushing in different directions and it was just it was going to fucking end like they were done they were fucking done dude six years they had this incredible catalog it still blows my mind they did all that shit in six years like that is crazy I at some point I had my dyslexic brain had changed it to nine years. And then when I saw six years on the documentary, I was like, six years. Like <laughs> That's like a third more impressive than I thought it was because <laughs> nine years is fucking impressive for that yeah. kind of catalog. So as far as this documentary goes, two things I want to say real quick. I was really impressed with a the video quality. Yeah, they had. I mean, they must have done a shit ton of work on that old footage. Yeah. The thing with filming everything is if it's on actual film, you can put it to HD quality later. And I had to keep reminding myself yeah. of that because and it's like it, it, it is incredible. Gorgeous. Like, like it, it looks like it could have been filmed today. It, yeah, exactly. Like I, I was watching that. And of course, I got new glasses today. So that's. That's one I, thing. It's not but, just the glasses. But it was like, no, I, I'm, I'm watching it on my big TV at home and I'm like, this looks fucking gorgeous. Like going back to the old Ed Sullivan, like grainy footage you always see of the TV show and all, all the stuff you've ever seen live or like of the Beatles is just this old shot on 1960s film. Like, but this has been definitely edited and then like touched up and like it looks gorgeous i'm not sure we said this at the beginning but peter jackson put this together yes yeah fucking props to peter jackson dude i'm gonna say that guy can make a film it's the best thing he's ever done and i love the lord of the rings movies it's the best thing he's ever done like it's it's incredible the sound quality again is i'm surprised that they got that great a sound quality like it sounded great I was really into the Beatles for a while when I was a kid. I was kind of like, man, the Beatles, you know, like through high school a bit. And then in my 20s, when I started playing in bands, I started to realize like how fucking good their songs were and started to really put together, oh, this like 50 songs that I love are all the Beatles. And I I knew like maybe 10 of them were, but holy shit, you know. And then over time, it was like, okay, I'm tired of hearing about the Beatles. It kind of reignited my love for the Beatles, to be honest. It wasn't that I hated them, but I was also, if I'm being honest, if there's an album that I go to the most, it's probably All Things Must Pass. Like, there's some things in there that I really, really love. Jesus Christ, dude. It's just like, it. I've had Get Back and like, Let It Be and fucking The Long and Winding Road in my head nonsense. It doesn't hurt that they played each of those songs a minimum of 50 songs, 50 <laughs> times in that movie. But that leads me to my final thoughts on this. I would highly, highly recommend this movie if either A, you're a Beatles fan, B, you are in a band, or C, want to be in a band. If any of those things apply to you, you need to watch this. Yeah. Like, you need to watch this. This is, like, the number one thing you should probably watch. Because I had been in, like, one or two creative sessions. Like, uh, I was in a band, but it was, like, we had one or two sessions and we never, like, figured anything out. We couldn't – never really got Like on a most page. bands. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I had played music for many years before that. When I met you, you were rocking the cello. 
Yeah. So I played. And then you could play bass. I remember that. Yeah. So, I mean, I have played music. I mean, never in a band. And it was always, I mean, I could play sheet music pretty well, but it was never, it was never a creative thing so much. So seeing that was really interesting to me. Yeah. I was playing in bands for about 10 years. It was probably slightly over 10 years. Everything about their process, except for the vocal stuff I talked about, was what we did in, in practice. And that's why I say, like, if you want to be in a band or if you're in bands, you're going to get a lot out of this. You just are. And so, like, you don't have to be a Beatles fan to get sucked up into this because the the nature of the documentary lends itself to not being a Beatles fan and still enjoying this. Yeah. Like, just straight up, dude. You can feel like their songs are like nails on a chalkboard, but you're going to learn the right way to be in a band and like learn the wrong things to do in a band as well, because they have all the distractions that you know are fucking festering that lead to them breaking up. Do we see them break up? No, but it's all there. It's yeah. all there. The reasons why they, you broke know, I, I, the other thing I, and of course I, I have a lot of this documentary still to watch and I'm going to watch it. Yeah. It might take, might take a few weeks, but I'll get there. It took me two weeks. Like, yeah. I mean, eight hours is a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, even the chunks are broke up like two and a half hour to almost three hour chunks. Yep. All right. We did our piece on Let It Be. Quick note before I start this segment, we talk about Hawkeye, the most recent episode, and we talk about Spider-Man No Way Home. However, when we're talking about Hawkeye, we do spoil one element from Spider-Man No Way Home. I don't want to remove the spoil because it's really funny when it happens. So if you still haven't watched Spider-Man yet and you thought maybe you could listen to this Hawkeye segment, not unless you want this ruined. I don't think it's a big deal, but I'm just giving you fair warning. All right, we got Carl here. Hey, what's up? We're just going to go on the Marvel tip, I think, for this. So, Okay. What were your thoughts on the most recent Hawkeye episode? It was great. I loved it. I really like Elena a yeah. lot. And just her whole attitude is awesome. Her sass, her like nonchalance. And I kind of thought that Kate was a little stuttery. Like she was really taken aback by the whole thing. <laughs> And she never really was able to talk. Well, if you at put first, it, if you put it but, in context of what happened to like, she was basically just like thrown to the wind by Hawkeye right before that. She almost died. Like if she hadn't been caught on that line, she would have been dead. Then like Yelena shows up at her apartment. Like, <laughs> yeah, she's not she's mm. not used to the superhero thing. So it. it Character-wise, made total sense to me. Yeah, but you, no, absolutely. But you're, you're right. You see, like, the difference and, like, Yolanda's clearly, like, a steady hand and, like, kind of used to this thing. Yeah. And she is not. Yeah. I, I think that's the best scene of the series so far, for, honestly. For sure. It was really good. And uh, I really like uh, Grills, the, the LARPer guy. Yeah. I think he's a good addition. And he, him and the other LARPers are kind of like stand-ins for the tenant yes. building folks. And he dies in the comics, doesn't he? Oh, no. That's, that's what I've heard is like he dies in the comics. I'm not saying that's going to happen in I this. I, this kind of feels like it might get another <laughs> season to me. Okay. Like most of the shows don't, but I'm watching this one. I'm kind of like, they've set up a whole world in a lot of this world. I'm not sure necessarily works for the movies because they got to think like Disney Plus now as well. And if Loki gets a season two, this is one that feels to me like it could get a season two. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Or at the very least, 
Kate Bishop could get a season two, or maybe they become minor players in like Echo's story because we know Echo's got a series coming yeah. up, right? They might have make appearances in episodes. But I gotta say, man, uh, Florence Pugh, I am super excited for her. Like after watching this yeah. episode, I think she's the one that fits in the best of all the people they've introduced in Phase Four. Like she's the one that I can just see bantering with everybody and really, really making it work. Having yep. seen her second turn as Black Widow here, yeah, I like her a lot. I hope we see her a lot going forward. I kind of think they would be fools to not do another Black Widow movie with her, honestly. For sure. Like, she's a rising star for sure. Like, she's the person who will have Oscars. Like, she will. Yeah. She will have Oscars someday. She's in the conversation all the time. She's been nominated a few times. And now she's, like, killing her Marvel stuff that she's doing. I just, I think she's one of the big superstars rising right now, you know? So I have a question about Echo now that you bring Echo up. We haven't seen any demonstration whatsoever of any kind of superpower from Echo yet. Do you think that we will see the emergence of her power in the finale, or do you think they're going to save that for her own series? So my understanding of this character isn't so much that she has a superpower other than in the comics right now because she's got the Phoenix Force. But if, if we divorce it from that, my understanding of it is it's not that she has a superpower. It's that she has an ability like Taskmasters, right? Which is you can watch the other person and break it down and learn their style very quick. And we haven't seen a total demonstration of that, but we've seen her just react quickly and be able to deal with things. So I think... But I think that even in the comic, Taskmaster's mimicry ability, it borders on on superpower. You're right. It is a superpower. It makes him able to hang with superheroes, but it's not technically a superpower. He's just super fucking good at what he does. I mean, it... it, I mean, I know what you're saying. How did did he gain this ability in the comics? I don't know. Because it is like a... It's a... I mean, superhuman... Did I say superpower? As as though, like, it's not something that is attainable through normal training means. Yes. It's something almost like a gift that you're given in a way, right? Like It's like... Like Daredevil is blind, but then he gets hit by radioactive waste and that causes him to have that kind of sonar ability, right? It's like a, yeah. It's like a mut- he's mutated. Yes. Like, to me, that's a superpower. Or irradiated. She's a superhero like Batman's a superhero, right? Like, Batman doesn't have superpowers, but, like, he can hang with everybody because of his abilities and his equipment. I think that's where they're putting her. I I would be surprised if that's not what they're doing with her because they're already tying her in with Kingpin. They've already sown the seeds in this episode that she's going to turn on Kingpin. I just feel like if you're bringing Daredevil into continuity, which we'll get back to in a bit, you've got Luke Cage kind of sitting there if they want to do something with Luke Cage. You've got Jessica Jones sitting there if you want to do something with Jessica Jones. You have these street level people that they're starting to build up. U.S. Soldier might have superpowers, but he feels more like a street-level guy to me. And I could be mistaken on that, but I feel like maybe they're building up the street level a bit, you know? Yeah, it looks like, according to an interview with the director's of the show, her superpower is essentially that she has turned her disabilities into a strength. She has, like, really fine-tuned her sense of sight to the point where she can remember things and pick things out, find details 
whatnot, photographic memory kind of thing. And then also, and this was an interesting thing, is that she has a prosthetic leg. Mm-hmm. And that is not a feature of the character. And the actress, who has never acted in anything else before, just happened to have a prosthetic leg. And, and so they, they were, were like, like, we're going to put it they in. They were like, that actually works really well as well, because there's that moment where he strikes her in the leg, expecting a, like to stun her or cause Hobble her to wince. And he just hits metal or whatever it is. And uh, it puts him at a disadvantage for a moment. He's put off guard by that. And interesting how uh, this actress has shaped this role of this character so much adapting it. It harkens to something that they've done in comics and other adaptations before. Okay, I know this is like a a crazy example to bring up, but I think it's a really good one. Uh, So back in the 80s, they did these TV movies for The Incredible Hulk because it was a long-lasting show. And for the TV movies, most of them, I think they did three of them. And two out of three of them, they chose to have other superheroes in them. They were like backdoor pilots. They were backdoor pilots that never One worked. of them was Thor and the yes. other one was Daredevil. Yes. And the Daredevil is the one I want to focus on here because – The trial of the Incredible Hulk. Yes. and there's In a, which there never actually is a trial. No. It's a, it's a dream sequence. I, <laughs> Except I have for the that, dream sequence. I have yeah. that DVD. <laughs> I have that DVD and I love Why it. Why would you even call though, it that? Even though it's like corny as hell, because like I remember watching it when I was a kid, and that was one of the best superhero things I'd seen oh, as a kid. No, so, those Weekly Planet guys just reviewed that recently on their right, car- yeah. Caravan of Garbage, and their conclusion was of all the corny ass nonsense that was coming out at the time, that is easily the best. Yeah. So it's, like if you're gonna if you're way, curious, they, they get what's his face? Is it Rise Davies that plays uh, Gimli in Lord of the Rings? And he's like in uh, Flash Gordon. I think. So. Or no, not. No, that's Brian Blessed. Sorry, not Flash Gordon. Uh, he's also in uh, Indiana Jones. He's like, ah, it's very dangerous. You go first. Like he plays Kingpin in that. Yes. In that TV movie. Yes. Yeah. Jonathan Reese Davies. Jonathan Reese. That's right. And so because when you say Reese as a first name, I f- immediately picture Reese Ifans. And that is not the same guy. Yeah, I, I, I always, I always get <laughs> yeah, his yeah. name mixed up. But they have this scene in, in the. He actually the is a really good kingpin too. I would say he was good. Yeah, like he doesn't fit the character no. as it is on the page. But like, and he had a in terms of stature, and... like he he makes a good kingpin. But the the point I was meandering towards was they had a scene in this where like Daredevil is just like chopping through all of these guys for the kingpin, and then he does this thing where he's like trying to figure out how to beat Daredevil and so he has this part where he like has these bright lights to try and blind him and it doesn't do anything but then he does like a sonic attack on him and then that basically like doubles him over and he's not able to like deliver on it in that moment but he's like testing him with with things and so when he tests him on that he sees like oh this is a way that I can get an advantage and I think like that's a smart thing that they're setting up with Echo too is she has these disadvantages so like the bright light things with Daredevil you know like sound is not going to affect her but you put her in complete darkness she's fucked like more than a lot of people are fucked because she can't see anything so it's interesting because they're going to be able to play with exactly what her situation is which i think is is smart like it's good to know your hero's strengths and weaknesses right yeah and she'll overcome it you know what i mean like they're not going to be just like she might she might actually you know what might be a thing that happens to her at the end of this series is they might like put her in a box metaphorically 
And then the beginning of her series is when they let her out of the box again. Yeah, it's possible. And I mean, like, it could be a real box. I could imagine her crossing Kingpin and him punishing her by taking away the one thing that she has, which is her sight. Could be. I suspect that they're going to be Kingpin. But she escapes at the beginning of her own series. She'll she'll turn. She'll she'll go with the heroes and and help beat him. I I feel very strong. Well, she's not. He's not. Okay, But he'll. He will live to fight another day because you do not reset Vincent D'Onofrio to not use Vincent D'Onofrio. Right. Like Like this is – we saw a mere photograph of him at the end of this episode and going in there's one episode left. So we know that he will make at least an appearance. By the way, what a great week if you were a Daredevil fan. Yeah. Because like the same week we got that Hawkeye show and then a day later if you saw it on Thursday, which I did not. I I saw it on Friday. uh, You get to see Daredevil in Spider-Man. Fantastic, dude. What's that? You see Matt Murdock. Yeah, but... I don't think he is Daredevil. (laughs) You just think he's a really good lawyer? Yeah. (laughs) That would be the funniest fucking... That'd be the funniest fake out is if they put Matt Murdock, but he doesn't have any powers. No, he's just a really good lawyer. Yeah, and he's not even blind. Like, he just likes red sunglasses. Do do we have That would be so goddamn funny. Uh, Yelena was hired by Kate's mom to kill Hawkeye. Which I've been figuring for a while. And I knew she was involved in some way. I also think that, like, they really, really set that up in episode four. Yeah. When she immediately starts to talk to Clint and saying, like, reminding her of Natasha. Like, it felt to me like a veiled threat. You know what I mean? Yeah. And even the way she, the phone call, she made a very suspicious phone call yes we got to see that was the biggest that was like the most like hey guess what bad news over here yeah but it felt like i'm invoking natasha to like make you distance yourself from my daughter and also as a veiled threat to think of what could happen but then she hires a black widow that didn't feel like a coincidence to me that it went down that way so we've seen like it's not a coincidence i think that she was brought in specifically because it was a reminder of clint that like it's that extra punch right like it's not just that i'm gonna send an assassin and after you, I'm going to send an assassin who was of the same ilk as your best friend who you watch die. So the finale, we're going to see a conversation between Clint and Yelena. Even if she comes around to the line of thinking that like he didn't kill her, like Natasha chose to die. Clint's still done some awful things as Ronan. They are definitely setting up a reckoning for that in the series, you know. And does that end with Clint's death or like Clint just stepping back a bit and becoming a mentor i don't know it could be either one of those things i wouldn't be surprised either way i kind of think he's gonna live through this and either be a mentor or just like hang up the bow i see somebody else taking up the mantle of ronin and then getting cut down and taking the fall for all of it but I nobody see has clint, to take the fall either you know i what see I mean? clint retiring but the way brett Favre retired right so the way clint's already retired yep. twice <laughs> where it's like he retires and then they show up and he's back in it yeah and you know it's fun because i do like to see these guys that do this i like to see them age and get all banged up and have to like uh, fucking pick myself up and tape myself back together and put all these ice packs all over my body. <laughs> I like to see the real world. The cost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, I don't expect to see it on the suit, like Thor, obviously. You know, they have to deal with other more existential things anyways, usually. Yeah, Clint is our 
doorway into the like what would happen if a regular person was an Avenger, right? Like he's kind of the audience surrogate in that way. And I think that's telling in like Avengers 2 where he's just like, I don't know, it doesn't make sense. I got a bow and arrow like right. out here. Well, like, and like I think what we also need to see in this final episode is uh, we need to see Kate get some real direction. Unless Clint is willing to like become her full-time trainer. I mean, he's basically retired as it is. It's not like he's getting jobs still from who, you right. know. And but like yeah, she, I guess Shield doesn't she needs really something. Exist she needs to like she needs a headquarter at Avengers headquarters where you can get jobs and like practice and real world application of her skills and like well let's be real with this so she needs direction of some if kind she, is if all she I... like quote unquote wins in this last episode it means that she'll have beat her mom which means you've taken away your financial independence and her world's gonna be kind of burned away so like this is all that's gonna be left is and this drive so honestly considering Echo she's... might be that person to kind of take her under the wing if Clint doesn't or or Yolanda? I think Yelena or might. Yelena. God, uh, I can't remember that name. <laughs> Yelena might introduce her to what's her name? The Countess. Countessa. Contessa, and she could be because I kind of do see like a young Dark Avengers, kind of like a merging of young Avengers and Dark Avengers kind of happening with the second generation. Can I just say one thing about the term Dark Avengers? Because I've been hearing that thrown around by a lot of people lately. It's not going to be Dark Avengers. At no, best, it's going to definitely be, not. At best, it's going to be Thunderbolts. Thunderbolts. Which is what you're they right. Like. No, you're right. Yeah. You're right. Thunderbolts is a better. Because uh, Dark it, Avengers is a very specific thing, and it was for like a very specific time, and it was definitely like the. The opposite, polar opposites of each character was yeah. like in it their place. And Thunderbolts is a more accurate Cause that, thing. And that's where they sprung from that's anyway. Actually, that's right. That's what I think. May, I think that like sword is going to become a thing maybe. It already is. Oh, right. It's up in we space. Got, and Monica Rambo. So what there. would it be? Hammer? No, that'd be Hammer. Justin Hammer. Well, Ham Hammer is what the Dark Avengers are. Right. Because that's, that's like, what that's what he changed. That requires just way too many characters that don't exist. Like mostly Norman Osborn. All of this comes from the Thunderbolts. Like yeah. all everything we're talking is what I'm about. Thinking so, about. Yeah, I think the I just wanted to like You're clear right. that up. It's not me trying to be like, well, actually, it's just like I've been hearing a lot of people. It's going to be around. like the new team is going to be Yelena is the Black Widow and Abomination is the Hulk. And uh, we'll have probably um, U.S. soldier. U.S. soldier. We'll have somebody in a suit of armor of some kind. Yeah, possibly. Uh, no, I can't. It can't really be. It can't. It won't be Iron Patriot, and it won't be uh, War Machine. But we have Armor Wars coming up. Yeah, and Armor Wars will basically whatever comes out of Armor Wars will become the Iron Man of this team, and then Kate will be the Hawkeye of this team, and they'll think they're most As, of them will Isaiah think they're good Bradley's guys. Nephew, I don't remember who he is, but he's supposed to be somebody in the comic. Like he's a okay. hero in the comic who I think is like kind of like a renegade hero. But so who? That, he be an analog for i don't know but i'm just saying like that's a possibility like the only one that i don't know who would be good replacement is thor for the original avengers like they haven't set up a thor yet unless loki. it's like loki <laughs> yeah. or sylvie oh god if it was sylvie i almost Fuck, feel if like it was sylvie that'd be so badass and yeah. then if they had and then what if agatha what about kid loki i want agatha to be the um well we got house of harkness coming so you want know, her to that's... be the wanda maximoff yes of the avengers of yeah. the thunderbolt 
Yes. Oh, wouldn't that be amazing? I just want to see. All the pieces are in place and it's just a matter of like A, which pieces are sliding in and B, what they're going to do with it. Also, I think think Lauren Lapkus has either a very minor role in an upcoming Marvel thing or in an upcoming Star Wars thing. It might be Star Wars because she did that podcast with Nicole Byer. where they were like, we're people that don't care yeah. about Star Wars and we're going to watch all of them and we're going to – That and was – They actually got a lot of – That first season was fantastic. Yeah. I, I listened to the They got a lot thing. of people that didn't like Star Wars into Star Wars too. Like they showed people how to like it in another way that's ex- acceptable. And it's not like a fanboy. They did a very funny thing that I appreciated, which was like they got all these fanboys in to talk about it. Yeah. And they talked about the like real – minutia of it but they did it on their terms which was like refusing to learn the names using (laughs) the wrong names like yeah misconstruing plots and motivations of everything my two favorite episodes were the first one because it was paul of tompkins as the guest and then uh one that i'm sure you are maybe even thinking of right now with uh matt gorley Oh, like, Matt, that's right. Matt Gorley was in an episode. I forgot. And like, and you could tell that like, even though he was allowing them to say stuff wrong, that it was like killing him. <laughs> well, he also, he also, of all comedians, he understands because that's a dude who I've listened to on many podcasts. Like, I mean, just many different shows. And a big key to his comedy is him misspeaking and then just leaning into it. Because like, I think naturally his words come out jumbled and wrong. He makes comedy out of it. You know what I mean? Like he he realizes it's a thing he does. And so when he says something wrong, then it becomes the premise of whatever they're talking about. And he's really good about running like yes anding with that kind of stuff. You know, so that kind of show is like perfect for him. That like showcases yeah. his talent. So I think you're right. It was killing him a bit inside because he knows so much Star Wars minutia. But, like, he understands the, like, not understanding things as well. We should jump into Spider-Man here because I think since we've devolved off of this, uh, it's probably time to to close the case. So we'll talk about Hawkeye's finale next week. Um, I'll probably get you and Brandon in on it because we're recording on Wednesday. So he should be able to theoretically get a chance to watch it. So Spider-Man No Way Home. What'd you think? We are going to spoil the shit out of this, obviously. Uh, It was uh, fun. It was big and long and dumb and fun and sloppy. And I think that is my biggest, if you, if I was going to describe this movie in one word, that's what it would be. And I'm not saying that in a negative way, because clearly they don't give a fuck about the movie making sense. All they care about is having fucking fun. Yeah. And they did. And even when everybody was crying, I was still having fun. <laughs> I was having fun. So the whole it was time. pretty good. And uh, at no point did I check my watch to see what about how much l- was left. I did check my watch like two or three times during Eternals. <laughs> And they're about the same length. But I also didn't really know what what they were going to do next for most of the movie. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that the whole plot of it was like saving the villains. Like, what a fun plot that is. It 
It was also funny that this movie had more villains than just about any other Marvel movies ever had. And it didn't feel overstuffed in any way because the loyalties of the villains kept shifting. And that kept the movie feeling balanced. Like at no point until the very end, and even at the end, it was still pretty balanced. Villains versus heroes is like four and four. You had three super Spider-Man and the Doc Ock. Yep. Versus at the end. four more. Yep. You know, and uh, Sandman was kind of like not really in it wholeheartedly, anyways. Here, he was kind I'm, of just reacting to things. Here's what I'm going to say about the villains: they did all of them right in their own ways. Like, okay, so Green Goblin, you get this interesting plot where he feels very, very lost and seems like a homeless dude when May gets him. But like, you also know that this is my one little quibble with the movie is that they posit the idea that if they cure him of this thing with the super soldier serum, that like he'll be okay. But what's funny to me is like, there's no way because like I recently rewatched the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies and like he is evil and then he takes his own serum and then he becomes like powerful and evil. But he was always evil. He just won't be crazy anymore. You're not going to reform Norman Osborn because he was a terrible person to begin with. You'll at the very least make him not as aggressive. Yes. He's like defanged. Yeah. He's not an imminent mortal threat yes. in in his depowered form. <laughs> yes. No, no, <laughs> but I he's agree still with that. like there's still a point but he's to still, do it. He, and he could always just like make that shit again and make himself into Oh, 100%. <laughs> he probably would. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually. I agree. Um I think also Doc Ock, they did a really smart thing, which was they started the battle with him and then made him very grumpy and stuff. And then when they like basically replace the chip, he's kind of off the board until the end of the movie. Smart. You like have him exit and then he comes back for the dramatic thing at the end, but you don't have to deal with him anymore. Smart. Sandman. Just wants to go back to see his daughter. So they're not betraying what that character was. But then it gets to a point where he's like, dude, I don't care. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get back to my daughter now. Definitely feeds into what the villain wants and also puts him in a position where he's battling the heroes. But also you don't take away his redemptive arc. Smart lizard. Just like minimalize him the entire time. Have a couple of jokes with it, but just keep him minimalized. Smart. Electro. You give him something to kind of like strive for in there, but you don't ever give him too much time either because you're trying to balance everything smart like they handled their villains in a very smart way and the smartest one is venom because like they have that little stinger at the end of maximum carnage where i'm just like jesus christ now they gotta like play with venom too and they're like nope he's just getting this credit scene so we can make sony happy that venom's in a spider-man movie and then he's gone I fucking love that, dude. I love that so much. Just, what about the bit of symbiote that was left behind? Yeah, but now Marvel gets to do something with Marvel the symbiote. Marvel gets to like... So I've heard a theory that the uh, the symbiote has a hive mind. That's not a theory. That is thing. That yeah. goes across multiverses. They indicate that at the end of Venom. Oh, like, do they? Yeah, he straight oh, up... Okay. Okay, so like, so that's why I've heard that. Then can I break it down really <laughs> fast? And I won't go too much into it, but like, basically, the end credit sequence of the Venom thing is Venom is explaining to Eddie that they have a hive mind and that they have all of this information. It would melt his brain if if he tapped into the hive mind, and he basically convinces him to give him a little taste of it, and then that's when like the multiverse stuff happens. So they don't say it, but because he's pulled into that and 
in this movie, I think the indication is the symbiote that was in Spider-Man 3 knows Peter Parker. And so therefore, all of the Venom symbiotes know Peter Parker. And so this particular symbiote gets pulled into that as a result because he knows of Peter Parker. Does that make sense? And that's why he goes when like they cast a spell. It doesn't make sense. But again, Sony is sloppier than Marvel. So I don't think they care. Yeah, it makes like, it makes comic book sense. Let me put it that way. Yeah, it makes Sony sense. It makes Marvel sense even. Like no, Marvel's Mar- Marvel would be tighter with it. <laughs> well, the Marvel MCU has would. been. Yeah, Mar- that. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> I mean, like literally, it the makes comic, comic books book are sense. the the comic books are sloppy as fuck. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, for sure. And the MCU is like probably one of the tightest things that's ever been a Marvel thing ever. It, it is, dude. Yeah, just so, because you're uh, like. I mean, aside from maybe some other self-contained things that are like consistent, internally consistent. Yeah, like uh, something like uh, Marvel 1609, which is. Um, like a graphic novel length series that transports the Marvel universe to like the dark ages or whatever the 1609 was. It was written by Neil Gaiman and it's pretty good because it's like one voice and it's one story and he's just got a certain list of characters that he cast of characters that he uses and it works really well because he's like seeing how they what they become in this other time period is just fun like i'd say that is more internally consistent than this but that's because it's smaller it's like one thing fuck man the thing about it is that you can't pick at this movie too much. You really can't. No. Because I picked at it just a little bit and it came unglued. I didn't care to pick at it, And this is the it, thing honestly. is like, well, you start to wonder like you got five villains that came from two different universes, which means that they didn't just come from different universes, but they came from different times as well. Mm-hmm. So where like Ant-Man is going to do time travel and Loki is going to do time travel and then like they're gonna start getting into multiverse stuff going forward but it's not gonna be like it is in this movie this movie is not a good example of how the mcu is going to do multiverses because they're never gonna do both at the same time but they're gonna do time travel or they're gonna do crossing universes but they're not gonna do both the mcu it's got a built-in excuse which is the spell got fucked up right it's got a built-in excuse so which which allows them because they are they don't care about hand waving stuff away is a thing and the MCU knows that enough of its audience is in it because of how well put together the gears are what an well oiled machine it's been up to this point like we've never had anything so cohesive on in a visual like movie tele you know we've audio never had visual a franchise medium. that works like this like nothing even and these this i dreamed of something like this when i was a teenager dude I, this was I, what i, I always hoped I, I remember walking out of this spider-man this is what tv should be this i is remember walking out of be. like x-men and everything Spider-Man is connected and having friends <laughs> like what'd you think and i was like i really liked it but the one thing that they're always missing is like i just want them to cross over with other heroes and it feels like they're never gonna do that i cannot express how excited i was at the end of iron man when they dropped the avengers initiative and it was one of those things that like nobody i went to the movie with understood what that was and i didn't even give a shit about the avengers at the time yeah it was just like they're doing it they're gonna like cross over with heroes and then the feeling of elation when i saw oh they 
literally did it in the Incredible Hulk when they have Tony Stark at the end of the, you know, in the stinger at the end. It was just like, they're actually doing it, you know? And then the Avengers, they finally, you know, like little breadcrumbs here and there. And then the Avengers, they finally do it. And when that happened, it was just like, it was the culmination of a dream I've had. And now they've gone so much further than I ever thought that they would go Right, and now, but this is an example to me of Sony jumping straight to the payoff without doing the, you know, because again, the the crossover with Marvel, they put out like five movies or maybe it was the fifth one or the sixth one, you know, was the first time they brought all everybody together. They took their time. Sony with the Spider-Mans has been adjacent to the MCU and basically there, you know, with their Iron Man being such a major character in the first Spider-Man and Doctor Strange having a presence in this one. Nick Fury in the second one. Right. But they also don't feel fully connected to me. They feel as connected as they would be to me because like he just met Doctor Strange. I mean, granted, it was five years, but they were blipped away. So whatever. So like for this one, it's doing the same thing that is happening to the MCU. It's having like a, oh, multiverse, right? The multiverse is real and we're doing the multiverse. But they're not doing the multiverse with the MCU. They're doing it parallel to the MCU. Maybe the spell is only possible because of what happened in Loki and they just aren't aware of that. I That but has like, been my theory going forward is like I really tr- – and I thought this going in when I saw that it was going to be a spell from Doctor Strange. I think that if he had cast a spell and it had gone the way that it went, the TVA would have come in and cleaned all that shit up. You know what I mean? Like they would have put a stop to it and eliminated everybody and just like it would not have happened. So the fact that the t- like this has happened post Loki because the TVA didn't show up. That's what I think. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's interesting. That's my theory because they start writing Loki after they write Spider-Man. And so, because when they go to do Loki, the idea that they've liked was um, the, the person who was the showrunner. She like came up with the idea of like, you know, let's do a multiverse thing since like Loki is, you know, was in this alternate reality. Let's really explore that. And so Marvel was like, okay, so we're going to let you in on what's happening on Spider-Man because it's important that you understand this when you go to write it. So I think that it was written in a way where it's like they're setting up these rules because Loki comes out first where it's like the TVA just cleans up all this shit so it doesn't ever happen. That's why we haven't seen it before. You know what I mean? Like it's working in concert. Now that the TVA is not there to clean that shit up, like you get something like Spider-Man. Like it it still works in concert to me. Are they going to do it this way going forward? No, I don't think they will. But it's a very specific circumstance and it's a way to get to a really fun thing, which I did want to talk about. The weird thing about – the one weird thing about Loki is that technically anything that happens at the TVA is happening outside of time. Yeah. So once anything at the TVA is resolved, it then is resolved from – throughout time, right? I think and so, it's yeah. it's very weird and when they, you try to like they synchronize They do the hand wavy thing in that the too shows. where they say like time works differently there. Like I don't even think they say it's removed from time. They just say it works differently and they leave it at that. So it's the Thor Ragnarok excuse as well, right? <laughs> yeah. Like time just works differently. They, at a certain point they have – I mean and they can't like – I don't expect them to explain like it's in – It's better if they don't. Yeah, they can't because yeah. it's not real science. You can't explain real science and scientific yeah, – We don't We don't can't need explain to see- – fictional science in factual science terms because those terms 
are because it's fictional. Like we don't need to see the midichlorians in this. Well, but that's I don't think that's the issue. But it's the, no, the thing it is, is the is, issue. It's well, when you like focus in on like why does this thing work? But we, like when it's a sci-fi thing, when you keep focusing in and keep focusing in, you get to the midichlorian problem, which is like you finally get to this thing that's this big plot point that nobody cares about because it's like we were fine with the force, we accepted it was just this magical power, and then you're like pulling that apart and being, but it works because of this. That's when it starts to get murky and people are like, well, all right, that's, stop. But that's not what I'm talking about at all. Like I'm talking about just like ex- – I like it when they describe how things work. I okay. want them to explain how things work, but they don't need to explain it in minute detail. But you need to have internal consistency is the thing. You need to have things be internally consistent. Like time travel in Ant-Man needs to work the same way in WandaVision. Needs to work the same way in Falcon and Winter Soldier. Otherwise, it's not a consistent universe within itself. This is where I disagree a little bit, though, because like Star Trek has done a lot of time travel stuff. And part of it is you just come up with different methods of employing it, which do different things. Which is fine, but you just explain that. Like this works explain differently it. because of this. Yeah, explain it. That's that's fine if it's a if it's a twist on it. If you're doing something different, I get that. Right. Like like, like end game time travel worked that way because they're doing it with pen particles. Well, you're removing the pen particles for this, and you're using magic, so it, it just works differently. I'm fine with that. Like as long as you don't get too into. Yeah, it's the not like the TVA is using pen particles. No, they're They've not. Got they're... a whole other setup going on, but they're using like future future tech. Yeah. I expect future future tech to and they employed certain like aesthetic like because at a certain point when you when future tech reaches a certain point you it should have such simple functionality that you can represent future tech in any way and it still works yeah because it's the future because it's the based off of stuff we don't know yeah I I want to ask you which of the Spider Men do you think comes off the best in this like which actor has elevated their position the best from this movie because I am utterly shocked to say I think it's resoundingly Andrew Garfield like I really think they I liked did him, him in that a movie very right? good solid in this movie which was like hey we're gonna hand you a good script we're gonna give you something to do and we're gonna like pay off all of this jumbled mess you were in before yeah. They did a great like, job. Literally by fixing these characters, they were almost like fixing those movies. It was weird. And like Toby Maguire, it was like, we don't actually have to fix anything with you because even though people yeah. didn't like Spider-Man so we're just 3, stab you there again. wasn't a yeah, there wasn't a problem <laughs> with it. But like we are gonna put you in this mentor role. Yeah. And I like that because he's like oh, he's man. the oldest Spider-Man. They're all just like I think the funniest part of that movie to me was when I mean It was the Daredevil thing for me. <laughs> I'm a really well, good no, no, lawyer. No, no. I don't mean funniest. Like <laughs> la- that was a great moment. <laughs> so good. Oh man, I'm a really good lawyer. That got a laugh out of the whole yeah. the whole room. I was in a pretty filled. Like there were a lot of empty seats, like in the front and stuff. But like, yeah, there was a decent crowd for the showing I was at. Same with where I was at. Is the biggest crowd I've seen post pandemic. Yeah. I didn't think we would ever get back to a crowd. But like it was that, kind of honest. fun. It was kind of fun to hear the audience reaction. That that was a thing that I did, especially for movies like this, like Andrew Garfield. Phil and Tommy McGuire got cheers when they walked through the portals. Uh, 
that was another fun thing, Ned Ned's magic. Yeah. And but he doesn't know what he's doing. So when he tried to open a portal to, to Tom Holland Spider Man, he got Andrew Garfield and then he got Toby McGuire. And I guess bringing see that was that's another slop the sloppiness of, of Sony, which is the sloppiness of the spell. Like, sure they've got here's the thing. You here's keep the thing. you keep no, saying no, no. this like the MCU didn't write the script. They, they did. No. They absolutely did. No, they didn't. They it's just Sony had man. Mandates that no, you have to get to, and then the MCU separate. shapes it. It's, it's separate. It's just not how it works, man. We've like been arguing this for no, months. No, this is clearly a sloppier movie. I than, didn't say it's not, but then the MCU if movies we're being, are. If we're being real, they Phase Four has been sloppy. No, they couldn't. There's just a lot of pieces, puzzle pieces that we can't. See, we're not allowed to sure. see yet. That's all there is. And part of the Marvel magic is but, when they're sloppy, then they go and retcon it and say it was sloppy because of this reason. Which is they fine. Hear the fans. But yeah. that's not what I'm talking about, though. Okay. Not, that's not what I'm talking about with these with the Sony stuff. With Sony, it's like they're doing a ramshackle version. It's just because they come up with clever ways to hand wave it away. Like they... Like the fact that this spell goes awry means that all of the nonsense that then comes out of this plot that allows them to do the awesome shit that they could not do if their movie was tighter. They couldn't have Doc Ock and Sandman and Osborne in that room at the same time going, wait, you're dead. Wait, you're both dead. Like they couldn't do that in the MCU because that's too fucking sloppy. But we get to reap the rewards of Sony being sloppy because we get and because we get this awesome shit. We get. If I'm being honest, I and the truth is we're speculating. We don't know, but my gut reaction is Sony was like, we want a Sinister Six. Like we want some version of the Sinister Six. And I think Kevin Feige, not Kevin Feige himself, but somebody in his team was like, you know what would be fun is like revisiting all of the movies that led up to this. And I think they kind of put it together. Now we don't know what the end result is. Like we don't know which way it was put together but my gut tells me that they came up with that idea of like let's revisit all of this stuff and tie it off and i think it really does stem from the fact and i've been saying this more and more i started saying this before this movie was being made and i've been saying it a lot more when we started hearing that there was going to be these other spider-man the mcu is based off of spider-man 2 specifically spider-man 2 i think that movie has all of the beats that you see in an mcu movie and they ran with it and then they were able to do the interconnected thing which people like over dramatize that sometimes but like the core to an MCU movie is the character and the way that they portray that character and the way that they like pay off all of those characters and you see that over and you over know, again in the first two Spider-Man movies actually and I, I think, think that the real blueprint go ahead the real blueprint. This is why I MCU. like you because you'll always like push back on this and come up with something I never thought of. And sometimes I'll wildly Space agree. Baseballs. <laughs> this is why. Okay. Because the guy from Aliens or Alien, the captain, shows up. Tom Scarrett? Shows, no, the, the one that gets chest bursted. He's in the restaurant. In You're talking Spaceballs. about John Hurt. He's yeah, not, he's John not the Hurt. captain though. No, no. John Hurt is okay. in Spaceballs and they saw that and they were like, alien crossed over with Star Wars. That is what we're going to do. 
<laughs> like that works so well. I mean, oh no, not again. Well, then you're going back Hello, to like baby. Universal. Oh, honey. Then you're and going back then to there's Universal a musical Monsters. Number? Then there's a musical number. And look at how look like how many MCU things have musical numbers in them now. Eternals has a musical number. Uh, friggin' Hawkeye has a musical number, dude. So two, Spaceballs. two, <laughs> Spaceballs. <laughs> Origin of the MCU, Spaceballs. It's probably more Universal Monsters. If you merchandising, really go back, merchandising, merchandising. Yeah, well, that's just like the Star Wars influence <laughs> right there. But so that yeah. speaking of actually that you know uh, that was one thing that annoyed me was the special thanks they gave to Abby Arid. <laughs> okay, yes, I wa- I'm so glad you brought this up. I wanted to bring this up because it's like a giant, that guy has it's almost giant font, it. and it's right there. And I'm watching that, and I'm like, did he die? I was I like, hope so. I, I would have heard, I would have heard about it if he died. And then I was like, maybe he had a stroke or something. And I just read up on it, and they're like, no, they just wanted to like <clears> thank him for. I actually thought that was a good move. For I being- don't the executive producer of like just about every spider-man related thing ever right all the animated which shows, is why which is why i do every tip. appearance appearance he's made in anything his legacy <clears throat> to me is like i tip my cap to you because like we would not be in the situation if it wasn't for avi arad in a lot of ways but i just wish he cared about more he than money towards the end i just he, wish he, he came cared. from toy biz yeah exactly yeah. all he cared about at the end and of the ike day Berenger. was selling toys he didn't well ike was the really ike, bad one ike perlmutter uh, yeah that's the guy yeah yeah ike guy. was the bad one he was the one they that both like they the had to roll out like roll out on a rail, but Avi Arad has never been connected to the MCU either. No, like he he's done his thing with Sony for a long, long time. But I tip my cap to him because like I love that Spider Man cartoon when I was a kid. Do you like and the got, Iron Man cartoon? I did. I haven't. What seen about it season for a two while. when it goes all metal? I never saw season two. I like I it's saw the Disney Iron Plus. Man cartoon late at night. Right before the Iron Man movie came so out, and this. I was like, "Hey, this is all right." No, uh, actually, the two seasons of Iron Man, the animated series, are a great example of like the Aviard effect. Because season one, he's like the leader of his own team of Avengers. They're not called the Avengers; they're well, called he's running, something else. He's running Shield, basically. And but then it's, they run there's it a into name, that. a team yeah. name, right? So, and the first season, they're all there all the time. It's like him and four other heroes. A lot, not all the time, and then but a lot, yeah. The, and the opening is like organ music, or like it's mm-hmm. like this classical music, and him like doing something. And then they're showing season, the origin of Iron Man. So season opening. two, it's like. Now Iron Man's got a mullet and like the opening is all metal guitars and and then like and also the team disperses at the beginning of the season and like each episode has like him, Iron Man and like maybe one of the other characters because he didn't want to pay the other voice actors for full season. So he cut right, them all yeah. out of the show and it was like bottom line. We need to streamline this show so that we can just sell toys. Cause then they like started making <coughs> Iron Man started getting these suits that were like in the show were like basically existed for them to then sell action figures. Of. Yeah. And like mistakes were made for sure, but these shows don't exist without Avi Arad and like, yeah. 
And there's a whole I, generation like of said, fans who were like brought he, up with that stuff. I wish he you know? cared about the characters as much as he cared about making money. That's all I'm saying. I do agree with you. <laughs> that, but what I'm saying is like he started something that was influential and like very important to the superhero genre. And so I tip my cap to that. He just sucked the last like 15 Whatever, years or corporate so. Corporate bootlicker. <laughs> uh, is there anything else about Spider-Man Homecoming we should hit? Or? Oh, yeah. All sorts of shit, dude. Because we only got like seven minutes. <laughs> Whatever. We keep talking. In my opinion, fucking Willem Dafoe stole that whole goddamn movie. He's really he good. He was the best part of that whole movie. He was I, so, oh, when they were fighting at one point and like Spider-Man was like perched on him and like punching him in the face and he was just like laughing, laughing at his punches, just <laughs> laugh. And then he like body slams him through the floor and it was like, Jesus Christ, this is a, that fight was knocked down. All of the fights between Green Goblin and Tom Holland were like knocked down, drag out like fucking pile drivers and shit. Like just brutal. And apparently Defoe would only do this his own if he stunts. got to do his own stunts. Yes, yeah. That was awesome. Yeah. And like I heard that after the I saw the movie and that just Me made too. it that much better. He got to be the goblin without that stupid motorcycle helmet. Yeah. He smashed the helmet, which was with the, when he smashes the mask, that was a, that was probably the biggest symbolic gesture of what we're fixing from the, yeah, I think from the, I think Feige was like, we're going to be faithful when we set him up and then we're just going to like, I mean, when he has that, him, except for the lizard, I think they didn't know what to do with the lizard. They just couldn't like, make him, they had to make him look like, like, yeah. How do you explain making him look cooler? It's yeah. just like, ah, we're Can't do it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they figured out a way to make uh, Electro look cooler. Right. But there's, and a, that sto- was awesome. there's a story reason when they do that. Right. Yep. And, and it once works. again, it's like. Worked so good. I think they, they decided, him- I think they decided like the lizard were just, we're just going to like marginalize him and put yes. him off to the side. And so if you do and that, it it's like, do we need to like. It was fine. Yeah. It's fine. And then, but like they even managed to give us a glimpse of the goofy mask that Electro wore, but they made it look cool. Yeah. By making it like an, a made of electricity thing that wasn't like constantly there, but would like flicker in and out. And I was like, that looks good. That looks good. He looks fantastic. He's got the freaking. Uh, what you call it? Uh, the arc reactor. The arc reactor built into his suit. That was fantastic. Like, oh, there were so many good things about this movie. <laughs> I love the whole thing about like, yeah, he fell into some eels, and then they they're talking about, yeah, he fell the, into the sand gliders. Like, yeah, great really magic. watch your step, right? <laughs> yeah, fall, a lot of falling into things. Dude, Andrew Garfield was great in this. I was so happy that I was right when I saw that trailer. And, like, I saw that and called it out on the podcast. I was like, Andrew Garfield is going to sweep down and, like, save Mary Jane because that will, like, give him a redemptive arc because they leave him off in a pretty negative place in Amazing Spider-Man 2. and never got to. So, like, they, you know, they took the guy. They make fun of the fact that, like, he's the least of the Spider-Man, right? Like, there's all those jokes. They make him Spider-Man number three. They're talking about like the aliens that they fight and he's just like I just fought a Russian never, guy in a in a rhino I never got suit. To fight aliens. I feel bad about this. <laughs> yeah. Like they're all insecure in their own ways and it but Except he not was, Toby Maguire though, right? Like he's he is older 
And yeah, he's that's wizened, true. He's a bit more. And he's perfect because he's like, he is the older mentor who's not just there to fix the Tom Holland Spider-Man, but he's giving advice to the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man. Yeah. Like, it fucking makes sense, yeah. dude. It, was, it really, really <laughs> he works. He looked great, too. Like, yeah. he's 46. And technically, apparently, his character would have been 38 or 40, about my age, is how old that Spider-Man is now in art in the terms of the movies and whatnot but uh there is no uncle ben in tom holland's world then like i thought that there was but they basically gave the impression well yes because he has a suitcase that says ben parker on it and he alludes to it in the second spider-man where he's like after everything may's been through but he doesn't directly say it so i think ben died but not in the way that the other bens died i think that's what we can Okay, because I kind of feel like there never was an Uncle Ben. And I it think, feels that way because they made Marvel was like, into Uncle Ben. And I think Marvel did a really smart thing at the end of this too, which was like, we know that we haven't given you the Spider-Man that you expect. And like everybody's had fun with the Spider-Man, but we do have to put it back to like where Spider-Man's supposed oh, to be. Oh, I hate where this movie ended. That's <laughs> well, my biggest problem hold on. That's with this before, movie. And I know, I know what you're getting at. We'll get there in just a second, but I just want to say what they did was like they found a way to make him penniless and like not have this connection to all the other superheroes and all this tech and they all one the, more date him and all the changing <laughs> suits <laughs> yeah and it turns out this whole time aunt may was mephisto now we know <laughs> <laughs> and now we retire the mephisto joke <laughs> sorry and then he shows up here, in Brandon. the finality of hawkeye <laughs> yeah <laughs> it wasn't kingpin it was mephisto the whole time kingpin is Mephisto. <laughs> what they did was they were like, okay, we are putting this in a spot where like this is we now have the official Spider-Man. This is where he's supposed to be. He's the dude who can't scrape a dollar together. Like he's supposed to be the stand-in for the right. audience of all superheroes. Man, I was really hoping that fucking landlord from the the guy who like who sees like a rat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Rent? Rent. I was hoping his daughter would be there. Man. I liked her. Yeah, me too. She's scrawny. But she, I guess she never knew that he was Spider-Man either. So no. she there by was terms a, of the crazy spell, she can't come through. I did see a, a video on somewhere that was like making a joke that that was the sixth villain to round out the Sinister Six was the rent guy, <laughs> the landlord. <laughs> that made me laugh. <clears throat> I, I was preparing a joke about Bruce Campbell that I completely forgot because he foils Spider-Man in part three when he's trying to like – no, not For, part three. Part two when he's trying to go see Mary Jane's and he play. he won't let him in. Yeah. And he actually, there's an old interview with, it might have actually been when Bruce Campbell was once on uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, I think is where I heard it. I've heard that, yeah. And I think that's, he may have told this little Probably a bunch About of times. About how he defeats Spider-Man. Well, he says like he names Spider-Man. Yes. He defeats Spider-Man. And he's, then he helps him get married. He, and then he helps him get married. He's, yeah. So it's like he's really like the most important person in Spider-Man's life <laughs> at the end of the day. It's true for the Tobey Maguire I, I was not expecting to see Bruce Campbell in this, but I am expecting to Doctor see him Strange. in Doctor Strange. Yeah, because if he Ramey doesn't show joint, up dude. in Doctor Strange, I'm going to be pissed. There's no way he's not putting – He's got to show there's up. There's no way. 
way he's not putting Campbell into it. Right. There's he's just no to, way. And I him. and I think he's Kevin Feige. Let's be honest, dude. Kevin Feige is probably like Sam. You're gonna work him in, right? Like, we'll, <laughs> yeah, we'll work with right. whatever. He seems like the kind of guy that's he just wants. Like, it, we dude. can't have not have this. Kevin Feige makes us all work because he he's the chosen one. Like he is the <laughs> yeah. nerdiest of the nerds, but he also can keep his head and like know what makes good story and whatnot. I think he's gonna want Bruce Campbell. Yeah. Okay. Get on your point about Peter Parker because I know you were building to this. What really upsets you about that end? He took all of MJ's agency away from her. <laughs> By not going up to her and, it sounds so and Ned. Okay, when here's the other thing too. Ned figured out that he's fucking magic. And if and if he just lets the two of them go off and be regular people and go to MIT and be nerd engineers, Ned doesn't get to learn fucking magic. Like that's a crime against Ned. That's the kind of thing that's going to turn Ned into the hobgoblin. <laughs> He's been working out too, so I do think they're going like, to do a hobgoblin fuck, thing. Man, MJ, I it feels like they're it feels like they're writing Zendaya out of the story, you it know? And felt it pisses like it, me off. But I don't think they're doing it. Like they fucking better not. I don't they think they They already will. killed off the hottest Aunt May we've it, ever had. It very well could be that Zendaya doesn't want to do it anymore, too, because she's got a hit show on HBO that she's the executive producer on, like yeah. that Euphoria. She might not want to do it straight up. But, but she's so... Her, they she's have, so fucking They good. are both so good. I would like nothing more than for Tom Holland and Zendaya to not make anything else and to just be MJ and Peter Parker. Yeah, they're not going to the last 20 years. She's going to fuck Timothy Chalamet if she hasn't already. So that's they don't not going to work. They don't they don't have to like be that in real life. I know, but that plays into this. This plays into the <sighs> actors' decisions to do it, man. I'm telling you, it's the same like otherwise you wind up with the weird Dexter but, like, thing. Justify, like Dexter, justify Peter. Let me Parker put it this way. Like Dexter, that. the actors Michael C. Hall and uh, What's-Her-Face, who played his sister on it, yeah. they were married at the start of that show, and they were divorced at the end of that show. And then they knew they had to bring her back for the revival, so she's just constantly screaming at him. And it doesn't look like either of them want to be on set together when they're doing those scenes because they're not married anymore. Mm-hmm. But, like, it just seems like it would be hellish to me as an actor to, like, have to deal with that kind of stuff. I'm not saying that's the case here. I just, like, the idea that Tom Holland and Zendaya are going to be together forever is like ridiculous. Oh, well, no, I me. know that. They're both Obviously. too big. I'm just for saying that, to that I like them as those characters, and I don't, you know, as long as, as long as, okay, as long as he's making Spider Man movies, she should stick around. I like. would like that, but we can't take away Zendaya's agency. Boom! <laughs> yeah. I'm sacrificing Zendaya, the real human being's agency, in order to redeem a fictional character that she's playing's agency. (laughs) I mean, but you can't really – like, Peter Parker is is selfish in that moment, I think. Well, no. Actually, I I disagree with you on this. When I take into account everything that happened in this movie, he's constantly worried about – Ned and he's constantly worried about MJ and when he's telling them to kind of stand off to the side they don't and they keep doing things and good because they wouldn't have solved it but this is a very Peter Parker thing to me is like just being so concerned about the people that he loves that he's just like I'm not even going to like let them know who I am anymore because it will damage them in some way like they might get killed in the future because I've seen how they react to it so I'm just going to take this on myself it is a quintessential Peter Parker move right 
right yeah, there. Yeah, even and I though think he's it's, I also think it's selfless, even if it's not the right thing. But to he's do. also learned the like. The thing is, is that people know they can figure out who he cares about, even if those people don't know who he is. You know, right? Like, for example, no, you're right. But this is this is and what wouldn't Peter you does. rather? Wouldn't you rather if when the villain goes to kidnap your loved one, wouldn't you rather they be fucking prepared rather than? Them being like, why am I being kidnapped? Because that adds a whole extra. And then it adds a whole extra level of feeling like betrayed after you rescue them. They're like, why didn't you fucking tell me? I could have been more prepared for this. This is like like an 18-year-old kid. I don't think he's thinking through the prism of wisdom. Except that he's – it's just that I feel like he's learned these lessons already. Oh, dude, Spider-Man, there's, when it comes Spider-Man to- Spider-Man doesn't learn when lessons. When it comes to guilt, he never learns his lessons, Ugh. ever. He still blames himself for Gwen dying. Still. Well, after everything. No, no, not Tom Hall. <laughs> Andrew Garfield. <laughs> yeah, and they even implied that, like, he may kill his villains now. Yeah. I like that, dude. Dark. I I like that though. You're done with that thread with that's the Spider Man. That's why Th- this is what makes uh, this is what makes the MCU so good. They're like, we're done with this thread over there, and we're not actually connected to it outside of this. So yeah, let's just say that dark place that we left off on there. It just kept continuing in that dark place so that we can redeem him. I thought Sony, it was a good not plot point. Marvel. What's that? Sony, not Marvel. That's what. No, <laughs> it was MCU called the story shots. No, <laughs> Sony just like. Tony, like it, they can't. What it was this, was no. like Sony gave them the toys, and they were like, "Play with these toys." And then in your own Kevin sandbox. Feige was the one who like and our came sandboxes up with how they are next with to it. each other, but there is a little tiny little divider that no, keeps what, your sand over here and our sand over here. No, and what maybe it is, they shoveled no, some. It's not true. It's Sony brought the toys over in like a little blue crate and just like put it down, and like Kevin Feige was already in the sandbox playing with his action figures, and he's like, "Yeah, I want to play with those action." figures but he's like you can play with them but you can't play with all those other ones you just got to play with these ones and he's like all right so he like invents the game to play with in the sandbox like he's the one who comes up with the story oh man but now like, i want to like i want a visual i want a visual image. he'd be wearing the same hat as no, kevin feige always wears right i want like a the visual image cap. of like each of the fran like each of the big ones as like as people kids playing in sandboxes so you've got like the mcu as a sandbox and it's just like elaborately designed (laughs) sandcastles and like all sorts of crazy shit and then you've got like the sony one which is right next to it and a little bit smaller and everything is kind of like a little sloppier and then you've got the dc one which is just like (laughs) Zack snyder (laughs) eating sand (laughs) no what what the dceu is is it's like the kid who's been padlocked into his room by his parents and the heat's turned up really high and he's like he's playing with like i don't know the things that are around in the room maybe like crack pipes or whatever and then like there's and, <laughs> like that's but, the Zack Snyder but right one. next to it there's like a really kick-ass cartoon sandbox <laughs> it's just like amazing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my cartoon sandbox is really cool <laughs> my live action sandbox is that's eh. no, okay this nah. is a good note to go off on so take it easy see ya Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Follow us on Instagram at redwood underscore sound underscore labs, Facebook at facebook.com slash redwood sound labs, or email us at notsafernetwork at gmail.com. Not Safer Network was created by Carl Borneman, Brandon Beardsley, and Alex Small. Produced by Alex Small. 
does my swallowing sound really loud on the mic or is that just in my head? Cause no, I it's the in the mic. Push. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, hundred <laughs> percent. That's why I always try to like swallow stuff when somebody else is talking. <laughs> it's not noticeable when I mix it together, but a podcast about the narrative and effective politics of war movies and their productions too. Charles Horgan and Aaron Donaldson bring you a brand new podcast, the real war project. Dip in and out of subjects with Lauren and Sarah's irreverent points of view with the hilarious podcast, Dippers. Catch up with the week's pop culture news as well as reviews of new movies and shows, not to mention the occasional interview with Carl, Brandon, and Biggs on Not Safe for Network. Wrestlers wrestle, but sometimes they make movies too. This podcast lets you know how they do. Listen to Eric and Connor in all three seasons of Movies with Wrestlers. One by one, Jeremiah and Biggs break down influential movies and some wretched ones too in the podcast you can't miss, A Cosmic Void. 